introducing the only marionette who can sing and dance absolutely without the aids of a string. The one and only Pinocchio. You're listening to That's Pretty Dark. The podcast where we talk about all of the entertainment that scared us as children. And still haunts us as adults. So grab your flashlight and join us as we take a frightfully nostalgic look over our shoulders. And under our beds. And in our closets. And together we'll realize, whoa, that's pretty that's dark. That's pretty dark. <laughs> well, Kaylin. It's Christmas time again, and you know what that means. What does that mean? Toys that come to life. (laughs) (laughs) We did establish that. Uh, Yeah, the precedent for that last year, didn't we? Oh, yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. Last year, we did a spooky Furby episode. Super fun. And now that we've survived our first full calendar year of podcasting, we thought we'd talk about the most famous toy slash doll slash puppet that's ever come to life. Pinocchio. Because he really did. He really came to life. (laughs) (laughs) A few times. Yeah. And this is also like the very first time we're ever going back in the timeline, dipping back past the 80s and 90s. You know, Mm -hmm. our whole Mm -hmm. show is based on the 80s and 90s and what we experienced growing up. But we also talk a lot about how those things came to be and why they came to be. Right. And in order to do that, sometimes we need to go back to the building blocks of those stories, which you did a series on the history of Halloween. You know, we do go back in time and history. Yeah, yeah. This is just the first time we're covering a piece of media that's from a time before us. This is just, this is reaching way, way back. This is the furthest that we've gone back, but it's fascinating, y'all. It's incredibly fascinating. the ties that it actually has to... The 1800s. Oh, yeah. And also modern animation and storytelling, really, for kids. The whole point of the Pinocchio narrative is to teach kids what happens to children who were naughty. Mm. So, like, the naughty or nice paradigm. Yeah. On a scale of nice to Pinocchio, how naughty have you been this year, Kayla? Oh, my God. The thing is, I don't know if I've ever in my life quite been able to compete with Pinocchio <laughs> no. or Lampwick or any of the other. <laughs> Other children depicted in these stories. But I will say that probably in the last few years, I've come closer than ever before in my life. So that counts for something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Vagabond. (laughs) It's great. I also wanted to do Pinocchio this Christmas in particular, kind of strong-armed it into existence. You did. You forced uh, it. Over the past few days. Pulled a stromboli on it. Mmm. Strombolied it. (laughs) That doesn't work. Sorry. I tried and failed. (laughs) Strom that bully. No. We wanted to do it this Christmas specifically uh, because of how many Pinocchio oh, yeah. movies have been made in just the last few years. They're everywhere. Four since 2019. That's crazy. Two of those were this year. That's Disney's live action and Del Toro's, which I haven't watched either one yet. I haven't either. I feel That's so much better with you saying that. <laughs> That's my reward for getting this done. Sorry, listener, if you're expecting those. us to break those down. Maybe we will one day. Eh, maybe one day. Maybe at the end of part two. So yeah, so this is a series. This is part one of Pinocchio. It's going to kind of be a movie night slash book report. So, you know, turn those lights off and kick back with some mm. mulled wine or spiked eggnog. Yeah, we're releasing this on Christmas Eve, technically, right? Yeah, we are. So yeah, Merry Christmas if if you celebrate. And if you don't, uh, or if the holidays are difficult for you, mm-hmm. cheers to you and it's going to be okay. Yeah. Because you're never really alone. Never really alone. We're here. <laughs> Aren't you glad? 
Knock, knock. Is there orange you glad we're talking <laughs> orange about? Orange glad Pinocchio? that's pretty dark is here for you. Oh, by the mm. way, I'm Kaylin. Oh, yeah, you're Kaylin. And I'm Christian. Just in case you didn't know us. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we're glad that you're here with us. No, it's always good to introduce ourselves in this show. (laughs) But yeah, so we're going to end this year with the beginning of a series, and we're going to begin next year with the end of a series. Before we get too too in depth, Mm -hmm. I'm just going to let you know you heard that I was having health issues. I'm still having health issues. Oh, right, right, right. If you notice that my voice is somewhat hoarse, Um, I'm not sick. I had a procedure the other day, uh, an endoscopy. Yeah. Endoscopy, they say. And <laughs> so that's why my my voice is not its normal caliber. So yeah. bear with me there. All right. Ready to dive in? Oh, I'm ready. Ooh. Di- dive in? Is that a Pinocchio pun? Are we going to counter Pinocchio <sighs> puns? Well, we can try. <laughs> Take a drink every time we make a Pinocchio pun. It'll all be dumb. Don't worry. We'll see. <laughs> well, speaking of how many Pinocchio movies have been made, there have been an insane number of adaptations and reimaginings over the years. But for this series, we're just going to focus on the Walt Disney animated classic and the original Pinocchio text, The Adventures of Pinocchio, written by Carlo Collodi in the 1880s. Because if we didn't limit it to just that, Christian's head was going to explode. Explode. I was really close to watching it explode like two days ago. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we're not going to do that. We're just going to. No, no, we're calm. We're chill. We're going to chill. I'm drinking whiskey. I see that. In all of his many imaginings, Pinocchio is a sentient wooden marionette puppet who can animate without strings. In some versions, he's given the gift of life, as is the case in Disney's Pinocchio, and other times, more faithful to Collodi's story, he's inexplicably alive in a world where puppets are a subspecies, along with a number of talking animals. Mm. The most famous aspect of Pinocchio is how his nose grows when he tells a lie, Mm -hmm. even though this only happens once in the movie Mm -hmm. and twice in the book. Wow. And the first of those two times has nothing at all to do with lying. Really? Just stress, basically. Oh my God. Maybe I have more in common with Pinocchio than I thought. (laughs) (laughs) But there are other times when he's way more stressed out and his nose does not grow. So really hard to say. Hmm. A lot of inconsistencies, but there's some good reasons for that and some bad reasons for that. (laughs) Either way, This motif has become so ubiquitous that there's a lying emoji with a long nose. Mm -hmm. And like I looked at it when it first came out and I didn't think, oh, that's Pinocchio. I thought that emoji is a liar. Right. Me too. And it just comes from freaking Pinocchio. It made it it into our pop culture and our psyche very, very deeply. So I'll get this uh, nose thing out of the way here because, you know, despite how famous it has become, like we said, it's not a plot point in the book. It's not a plot point in the movie. It doesn't really have any consequence whatsoever. It's just really cool and unique and fun. So they're slightly different in the movie versus the book. To kind of wet our uh, wet our whistles here, mm. get our get our toes nice and wet. I was hoping for a metaphor that was a little more on the nose. Hey, take a drink. <laughs> so I'll talk more about the movie scene when his nose grows there later. But in the book, the character, the fairy with blue hair, she explains that there are two types of lies. There are lies with short legs and lies with long noses. Mm. And he has the type with long noses. And the idea there is sort of that one type of lie uh, has short legs, so it doesn't really get very far. It doesn't mm-hmm. get you very far. It gets, mm-hmm. it gets tired out easily. And the other is like a long nose. It's super obvious. And it's clear to everybody. Would you say a lie with short legs is similar to like a white lie? Could be. Doesn't really go beyond the moment. But then what would you say the long nose lie is? Mm. Just a straight up lie. Because the way that I always thought about it was, you know, there's a lie, like a bold faced lie. Bold or bald? 
Bold is what I knew it as, but that might not be right. Is that See, not I, right? Same. I don't know. I knew bold, but then I heard bald. So oh my God. <laughs> are we having a crisis right now live on air? Yeah. Now mm. we're cooking with grease. That dog will hunt. Hmm. Miriam <laughs> Webster. Is that lie bald faced or bold faced? Oh my God. Here we go. Hmm. Let's talk about lying. Variety of types. They're, they describe it as white lies and big lies. Okay. If you wanted a descriptor for such a lie in the 19th century, chances are you would have opted for barefaced. Mm. Described as barefaced since at least the 1830s. So that explains bald. Open or unconcealed. And then by the mid-20th century, it seemed that barefaced lie didn't sound awful enough, and the term bald-faced began to describe lies and liars. So <laughs> bald-faced is correct. Well, there you have it, folks. And I'm incorrect. And that concludes this segment of Kaylin Google something. <laughs> well, all, all of Pinocchio's sound lies are bald-faced because he's made of wood. Balsam-faced. <laughs> so the book itself is full of inconsistencies. But the reason for this is because The Adventures of Pinocchio were originally written to be published serially from 1881 to 1883 in a children's newspaper called Journal per Bambini. <laughs> you like that? That was good. Which is Italian mm -hmm. for... Newspaper for children. Clever. Pretty imaginative for a children's newspaper. But it, it did make a lot of sense to me when I realized that it was originally released in a serial way. Yeah. It made the whole thing make a lot more sense to me. Yeah. I'll just say that much. Just It, it kind of does because they're just little snippets. Yeah. It's like vignettes. Mm -hmm. As a kid, it confused me. And then as I watched it again <laughs> the other day, it again confused me. But yeah, they are. They are. Knowing that it helps. They are literally vignettes because the first thing he wrote, which I'll get to, is he described it as um, a day in the life of a puppet. Ah, yeah. That was the first thing he wrote. Yeah. Little vignettes. So I'll talk more about all of this later on. But one of the biggest reasons for these inconsistencies is because Collodi originally only planned for 15 chapters. But the ending of chapter 15, to put it mildly, was upsetting oh. for children. Whoops. So. <laughs> Collodi was later implored to continue the story, mm. and he expanded the narrative and wrote 21 more chapters. Wow. Okay. So that's where most of the inconsistencies fall, is things he had to sort of scrub away and rewrite and fix gotcha. later. He never meant for it to go this far. No, he didn't really mean for it to go that far. So. Gotcha. But what blew my mind is that later, once it was collected into a book, he didn't go back and like rework all that stuff and like fix all the inconsistencies. He just left them there. Literally, they just left it. Collodi wrote Pinocchio in the 1880s as a contemporary Italian fairy tale for children that was always intended to be a cautionary tale about selfishness and what sort of fate awaits naughty children. This is the formula of his story. Pinocchio is given the opportunity to do something good. He intends to do it, but then he does the opposite instead. Mm -hmm. Then, because of this selfishness, something really terrible happens to him or someone he loves. And then it's either, I told you so, or, woe is me, I should have listened and been good. Yeah. See, and that happens over and over and over and over like, and over. That's exactly what my psyche doesn't need. <laughs> right. Is more of that because Oh, I got I, you this book for Christmas. You're not going to read it? <laughs> yep. It'll go up on the shelf and uh, just remind me as it stares at me of all of these lessons. Quote like all the other books I buy you. <laughs> there is one book that you bought me that sits on a shelf and stares at me every day. <laughs> I know. It's Peter Pan. <laughs> And Haunting of Hill House. Oh, and Haunting of Hill House. Yes, they both do stare at me mm -hmm. every day. Somebody's got to. So because of all this, this book has been criticized in modern times for being far too didactic, uh, too moralistic. 
since the world Pinocchio lives in seems tailor-made to lure unsuspecting children, like Pinocchio, into as many traps as can be imagined. Even when Pinocchio is trying to do something good, he still embodies the old adage about the road to hell being paved with good intentions. Mm. But here's the thing about that. Pinocchio wasn't just meant to be a unique Italian fairy tale. It was meant to be something of an instructional allegory for the recently unified Kingdom of Italy. The countryside where Pinocchio lives out his many adventures is Tuscany. Mm -hmm. And the scoundrels, liars, murderers, and thieves that Pinocchio encounters along the way are not only examples of people who never learn to make an honest living, but they're personified critiques of what happens to the people of a war-torn country that's been consistently ruled by foreign governments for centuries. Yeah. So because of this, Pinocchio himself is not only an Italian cultural icon, but he's also a metaphor for the human condition. A metaphor that's still relevant today, because we may not like him, but we will always be able to identify with him and relate to him. Yeah, that's fair. Even when you don't want to be that person, just like we just said earlier, mm -hmm. whether we were going to compare each other to Pinocchio. Nobody wants to be Pinocchio, but unfortunately, everybody kind of is in some way. We are. Yeah. Uh, which is the point. <laughs> yeah. Um, on that note, though, like you said, the cultural background, I guess, for how it came about. More of which I'll get into in part two, everybody. Yes. Okay. If, you're, if you're curious to learn more about that, I get into all that history in part two. A lot of that is um, similar to some of the criticisms or discussions around the Disney film. Yeah. Because the Disney film came out in 1940, and a lot of people felt like it was like a metaphor for raising children in mid-century America. <laughs> okay. Uh, but they talked about how it was the central Disney film, you know, it was the pinnacle of Disney animation at the time, but it was also the most strongly middle class. Right. And it was almost intended to relay the message that if you indulge in a life of like the pleasures of the working class, vaudeville, pool halls, amusement parks, <laughs> this led to a life of folly, basically, or yeah. you'd have the burden of those things. That's so it so was interesting a strange, me. like, it moralized, you know, whether you had money or you didn't, it made that right or wrong. It added moralism to the classes, the working class, the middle class. Mm. And you didn't want to fall down the rabbit hole of these working class uh, snares, I guess. It depicted all these snares that typically would. Right. Uh, it was like a temptation. Like, yeah, they the temptations of the lower class. Because lower class would be viewed as um, less educated, simplistic. It's it's incorrect. It's wrong. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's all it's all incorrect. But just this perspective, a lot of critics at the time talked about that about this like, film because it yeah, put, yeah. it paints that in a very negative light, and it also mm -hmm. helps to convey. There was a critic that talked about it helping to convey to children middle class virtues of deferred gratification, self denial, oh, thrift, see. perseverance, and tried to make that the average American experience. Mm. You should be striving for those virtues, right. and not these temptations. That's so funny, basically, because the the book is very different from the from the movie. It was modernized in the movie. Those it things. It was modernized, but the book is much more of an allegory of the present times in the Italian countryside. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a war-torn country trying to rebuild itself under a new government, and that's always extremely complicated. And it takes a long time for the economy to build itself back up, especially in the midst of like multiple agrarian crises and the inefficient rise of industrialization in Italy at that time. So many people were poor and starving, and a lot mm -hmm. of people would have turned to crime uh, and crooked endeavors and schemes to make quick money or mm -hmm. satisfy temporary cravings. Mm -hmm. 
And that's why like the book, it, it's, it's rife with people starving to death. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the book, most of the things that Pinocchio does that gets him into trouble is him just starving, trying to find food. Right. Like he, he's hungry the entire book mm-hmm. and Geppetto only wants to make the puppet so he could just like put on shows and make some money. Right. Because he is so piss poor. And miserable. It's really interesting because it parallels the the film parallels that in 1940 because a lot of the people mm. that were making the film and modernizing this story were growing up in America in the Great Depression hey. and also in World War II. So yeah, coming off the Great Depression, going into yeah World War II. So it was like a I don't know. It's just so weird because culture was kind of repeating itself. There was a cycle that was repeating itself, and yeah. they just brought it to modern light. But again, like I said, there were these criticisms of yeah. the, the lower class, I guess, in this film. That's wild. But it would have that reality that you're describing in the late 1800s would have been very similar to the reality that people knew in the 1930s and 40s yeah. when the film came out. That's crazy. Yeah. I like that they're kind of criticized for some of the same reasons. Yeah. And it's just the same story being it's told. Just, over it's and the over. same story being told. It's the same story being adapted to try and make it relevant to. Mm-hmm. People that were going through the same human stuff. That makes me so curious to watch the newer Pinocchios. Me too. I want to know. I want to know what they and did And we have listeners yelling at us right now. <laughs> yeah. Once the original adventures of Pinocchio were complete, they were collected into a book and published in 1883. Mm-hmm. That book has been translated into something like 260 languages worldwide, making it the most translated Italian book of all time. Wild. And the third most translated book of all time. (laughs) Any guesses on what, like, the first? The Bible. Yeah, that's the Bible with 3,350 languages it's been translated into. Is that, like, all of them? That's all the languages. I mean, you would think so, right? (laughs) They're still coming up with more, though, so. (laughs) That's true. It can never be all of the languages. That's true. What's, um... The second one? I feel like I've heard this before. Can you give me a hint? It's another children's book. Oh, okay, um... Featuring a, a boy... Hmm. Lead character. So, well, kind of. Hmm. Not like an earth boy. Oh, not an earth boy. I'm making it way too complicated. Yeah, and now I'm, I have no idea what it's, it's a real boy on earth. That's fine. I really want to get this right. He's little and of royal blood. Oh. You might even say he's princely. The little prince? Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> As number two. That shocks me. 380 languages. I wonder why. And then there's Pinocchio. Man. Listener, do you and, like it when we quiz each other? Because for me, it's some of the most exciting content we could create. I, I sit on pins fun. and needles. <laughs> well, that's, I'm glad you said that because I made a list of the stories that Pinocchio beat, which is like every other story ever. Yeah. But the ones that I was like, whoa, whoa, hey, that's crazy. <laughs> whoa. Was uh, Tao Te Ching. Yeah. The Communist Manifesto. Yeah. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Okay. Don Quixote. Don Quixote. I, I, for some reason, thought Don Quixote was higher. The fairy tales of Hans Christian Andersen, the Quran, yeah. and Harry Potter. Nice. Yeah, but you would think Don Quixote would be like number I two. I it was higher, yeah. It's a, That's why I was confused when you said it was a children's book. It, it all crashed down because for some reason, I feel like I've heard that statistic yeah. about Don Quixote. And that was just from one website. Could be all wrong. Who knows? Hmm. It's on the internet. It's got to be right. That's what I'm saying. The first English version of Pinocchio was printed in 1893, which was just as successful as the original Italian and also guaranteed the immortality of Pinocchio with its first English film adaptation, the 1940 Walt Disney animated film, Mm -hmm. which we'll be discussing in this series. Yes, we will. In the 20th century, including the Disney film, 
there were at least 17 cinematic adaptations. 17. It's one of the most popular stories of all time. It really truly, is. Truly. Truly it is. Including a 1957 live-action TV musical starring Mickey Rooney. Wow. And so far, this century, and just the last 23 years, there have been at least 10 cinematic adaptations. Mm. Including the 2000 live-action Geppetto, starring none other than Drew Carey as Geppetto. Oh, yeah. And Julia Louis-Dreyfus as the Blue Fairy. Julia Louis-Dreyfus was the Blue Fairy in that movie? Mm-hmm. I did not remember that. You say Louis, I said Louis. Louis. Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Louis. <laughs> She's one of my favorite actresses. She's so talented. She is so talented. You watch Veep one time and you just can't, I can't get over her. <laughs> you watch Veep one time. She was the Blue Fairy. I love mm-hmm. that. I just so love this, that. <laughs> I was like, Drew Carey, though. <laughs> That's Geppetto. This is random. This movie here uh, was originally meant to be a reunion special between Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> but Julie was having her throat surgery oh at God. that time. So she that would have been it. incredible. Can you imagine what that would have been? It would have been great, done? especially been considering the music was written by Stephen Schwartz. Oh, wow. Have we discussed him before? I don't know if we have on the show. On the podcast? He, he wrote Wicked mm-hmm. uh, and Godspell. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well as the songs for The Prince of Egypt, Pocahontas, Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Enchanted, and the upcoming Disenchanted. As well as the uh, Hunchback 2. Hunchback 2? There's going to be one, I think. When? I don't know. Soon. Man, you're telling me all this stuff. Mm-hmm. I've been researching. I'm overwhelmed. I've been reading the internets. <laughs> and you rarely do that. Oh, the best thing also is that this is a musical. So can you imagine Drew Carey singing? I and can't, Julie and but I am going to, to go and see it now and find it. I'm sure there are listeners yelling at us about this too, because I haven't seen that. We have to watch it. Definitely. What do you do on New Year's Day? I guess I'm watching Geppetto. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he later adapted this into a stage play musical called Disney's My Son Pinocchio, Geppetto's Musical Tale. Hmm. So I thought if any of those things, you would know that one. I did Just because it's Disney. Did not. So this is one of six stage productions, including plays, musicals, and even operas. I did know there was an opera. I want to see a Pinocchio opera. There was a Pinocchio platform puzzle adventure video game released in 1995 for the Whoa. Sega Genesis, the Super Nintendo, and the Game Boy. Nice. <laughs> and at least 17 different Pinocchio stories have been written by various other authors, including Pinocchio Under the Sea in 1894, Pinocchio in Africa in 1911, which is just Radically racist. Yeah, I can't imagine. And then Pinocchio in America in 1928. And the most recent I could find was published just last year. Uh, But there were so many different adaptations and reimaginings that the numbers reach up, I think, into the triple digits. I tried to count, but no list was complete. So I was trying to compare and contrast different lists. Um, But I got up into the 90s on like Mm -hmm. one of them. So I was like, well, I'm sure there's at least 100. Wow. So he did migrate all the way over to America in a book before the film came out. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. He made his way over. Speaking of Walt Disney and Pinocchio, Pinocchio was the second Walt Disney animated classic made in 1940, just three years after Disney's first Snow White in 1937. And for some frame of reference, Fantasia also released in 1940, mm-hmm. and then Dumbo in 41, and then Bambi in 42. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of where the film was living. And, you know, I haven't seen those other movies in a very long time, but from what I remember... The Pinocchio animation just seems so much more modern it does. than, than all agree. of those combined. I agree fully. Yeah. I don't know what made it so unique, but my God. There are a God. lot of reasons for that, but Okay. Well, it's we'll, true. we'll get to that. Uh, we would do a Disney deep dive here, 
but this is going to be more of a Pinocchio deep dive. We don't really have time to do all of Disney. Maybe we'll save that for like Snow White. Yeah, and Christian's head was exploding. Exploding. The amount of information that he was already trying to I had to, to put the pieces back together. <laughs> Disney's Pinocchio. <laughs> I'm saying Disney and Pinocchio so many times, and I apologize. <laughs> I'm, I already hate myself for it. <laughs> Disney's Pinocchio is the story of a puppet who was brought to life by the Blue Fairy, who tells him, if he proves himself worthy, then he can become a real boy. But of course, he's met with a number of scenarios in which he's led astray by no fault of his own, I might add, mm -hmm. and is almost always forced to make bad decisions until he learns his lesson and changes the error of his ways. And if you don't know anything about the original Pinocchio story, the Disney film has so little to do with the book that if it wasn't called Pinocchio, the two would be almost incomparable. Wow. The movie takes many different characters and details from the book and uses them to serve its own purposes. But when it comes to the couple dozen different events that happen in the book, the movie really only uses three. These three are the puppet show, the false utopia for children, and the giant sea monster. Mm -hmm. And we'll get to the puppet show today, but the others we're going to save for part two. Gotcha. In using these three scenes from the book, the Disney film consists of a classic three-act structure if the three acts begin after a half-hour-long prologue. Mm -hmm. I was shocked to see how long it took Pinocchio to go to school. Forever. The entire first third of the movie is pure invention. Mm -hmm. None of it's in the book at all. The movie meets the book beginning in chapter eight. So the first seven chapters have nothing to do with the movie, and the first half hour has nothing to do with the book. Wow. And this tells me that the only way Disney could really make the story work is to completely reinvent the whole thing from the from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I, I read one bit of lore online. You can tell me if this is if this is true. If you read this, um, apparently Walt almost scrapped the whole project mm -hmm. because he had such a hard time making it suitable for children. Yeah, that's mostly true. Um, I don't know that it was because of the suitability for children necessarily. Yeah, uh, but they definitely struggled to begin production on this movie. A lot of it had to do with the new animation techniques that they were pioneering and learning at the time. Yeah. And they were animating Snow White while they were beginning production, you know, on their next features. And Pinocchio was actually originally slated to be the third uh, feature animated film that Walt Disney did. But they had so many problems with animating animals realistically in Bambi oh, that they bumped it. And they moved Pinocchio to the next slot, I guess. So they had Snow White, then Bambi, then Pinocchio, and then Fantasia? Yes. Interesting. Okay. I think so. More of the issue that Walt had with Pinocchio as a story mm -hmm. was how unlikable the character of Pinocchio actually was. Right. I read that too. That was part of it. He wanted it to be a much more likable lead character, and a lot of the adaptations and the way that they were molding the story had to do with the core discussion or the core a lot of people had different opinions differing opinions yeah. on pinocchio as a character how he acted why he acted what motivated pinocchio yeah. in the book he sucks yeah he's not he's um, not in like the original him. story yeah very much a brat ungrateful mm -hmm. uh hard-headed stubborn has to learn everything the hard way and <laughs> made it would it, it took them a really long time both with his animation movement and with his voice and his Mm. Uh, his voice, both literal and story-wise, and just his right. identity as a character. That took them a very, very long time to iron out, to make it into something that Walt felt would be enjoyable for people to watch. Makes sense to me. Because a true adaptation would need a lot of work anyway, because it's not. Mm -hmm. It's a fun read. 
The character's not enjoyable. Mm-hmm. It, Walt didn't think people would empathize with him. No, you he didn't no. think that anyone would care that he, you know, had misfortunes. Mm-mm. They had to make See, him more yeah. relatable. And I have a I have a pet theory about why children liked Pinocchio. People think it's because kids could easily identify with him. I don't think it's so much that they identify with him. I think I think it's that they could live vicariously through him. Yeah, because he was he misbehaves the entire time, and they're he I think does they, they he does the fun. things that they're warned against. I yeah. mean, that's I that's how that's, they're warned against it. Right. You know, it's the cautionary tale. He is yeah, the cautionary, cautionary tale. tale. Right. But Disney wasn't the first to get the idea to make a movie. From what I can tell, there were two others before him. There was an Italian live-action silent film from 1911, part of which is now lost. And I watched like five minutes of it, and it's crazy. Oh, wow. And there was an Italian animated film that was never finished. It was intended for release in 1936 which would have made it the first cell animated feature film ever made. It would have beat Snow White, Snow by, White a by a year. And it said the film has been lost, that only the script and a few stills remain. But many speculate that Walt Disney himself bought the negative <laughs> and destroyed it. What do you think? I mean, that sounds like a Disney theory. That sounds very yeah. much like everybody wants to believe, you know, that Walt's cryogenically frozen somewhere under the magic (laughs) kingdom yeah it sounds like one of those theories i don't know that that's true but i think that that's probably a fun type of lore i just think it's fun to perpetuate just because i can see it being you know it's the it's a willy wonka it's the slugworth Mm -hmm. you know it's like Mm -hmm. this this competition and it was such heavy competition at the time uh this is when disney was establishing themselves and then as we would go forward in time Every other film that we've talked about, we talk about how much they struggled to compete with Disney, but they tried. Yeah. Yeah. It, animation was always such heavy competition. Yeah. Uh, people were stealing. Disney was stealing animators from other studios. Sure. And other studios were poaching Disney animators. Uh, the animators were the real currency. Oh, yeah. In this whole period of time. For sure. I feel like how small the world was back in the 90s. We talk about all the same people working on all the same projects. Mm-hmm. How small would that world have been? Back in like the 1930s and 40s. Yep. It would have gone from like 30 people to like 12. Yeah, kind of. I, I can't imagine. It was very much a family sort of effort at Disney at the time. Not really because it was all men uh, for the most part. Like but incest. it was a very it. small, <laughs> uh, very small operation, I should say. Yeah. I have some notes about that if you want me to go into it now. Mm. About the people that were at Disney at the time. Let's hear it. At this time, these animators were the best at their craft, these Disney animators. And these Disney animators actually preceded the very famous, you've probably heard of the nine old men. I haven't, actually. Walt Disney had the nine old men who were kind of the animators consultants that were responsible for a lot of the animated films, short films, features, everything that came out of Disney from the 1930s going forward. I just see a but dark room with like nine white-haired Geppettos pretty much. just sitting in a semicircle and he has to come to them for permission and guidance. And he <laughs> That's has to kind like of what it was. Offer they were up his... like a blood sacrifice. He has to sacrifice a puppet just to like <laughs> spread the feathers and the wood chippings and like get them to like bless his the movie. The powers that be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was less that. They more worked for him than the other way around. They were definitely his. Oh, I like, see. More his. I don't want to use the word cronies because they i don't want it to be negative they made puppet um, sacrifices to walt disney yeah they were making the puppet sacrifices to it. walt disney themselves but the nine old men were actually young men during the production of <laughs> pinocchio and they were learning from other legendary animators that really don't get the credit that i think that they deserve because they were even before the time of the nine old men yeah uh, these were animators like bill tyla 
Uh, he animated the character of Stromboli, okay. but he was also probably best known for animating uh, Chernabog in the Not on Bald Mountain segment of Fantasia. Mm-hmm. There was also okay. Art Babbitt. You may have heard his name before. He was the lead animator on Geppetto as a character. Nice. He also animated the Evil Queen in Snow White. Oh, amazing. And Fred Moore was also one of the voices, the bigger voices in the Disney Animation Studio at the time. And he, he animated Lampwick in Pinocchio. And a lot of people oh, yeah. say that he kind of used Lampwick as a caricature of himself uh <laughs> they say that that lampwick looks a lot like freddie moore did that's funny but those guys were the big names at the studio at the time and they had absorbed and been responsible for the whole aesthetic of disney animation in the 1930s all of the okay. you know short yeah. films that were establishing disney as a company at the time right they were the the heads that were in those rooms very cool and they inspired the nine old men that were just Young men, some of which worked on this film as young men. Mm-hmm, and I'll talk mm-hmm. about them more too. Sweet. That's fun. Because the aesthetic had to come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, Disney has a look. And of course, Disney controlled his products. You know what I mean? Like he was yeah. very hands-on with his products. He was the voice of Mickey Mouse. Right, yeah. For goodness sake. Like he he was very hands-on with his animations. But right, right, right. he assembled this team that he trusted to bring his world to life. Man, that's all so cool. Um, so like we said, we shared some of the research. I gave Kalen the task of doing all the Disney production he did. research. Yes, um, he did. So thank you so much for doing that. My <laughs> God, this We wouldn't be recording if I had to do it. I, I didn't have time. Like I said, I keep saying it. His head was exploding and I'm happy exploding. to uh, assist. If <sighs> some of it can live in my head, maybe it won't make yours so big. When my head exploded, it was just moths and dust, just like poof. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Like his uh, mouth. <laughs> In Hocus Pocus. (laughs) In Hocus (laughs) Pocus. Yeah. So um, take it away. What else did you find? Tell me about about all of it. I've got a lot to say, you guys. And this is kind of how we're merging the book report and the movie night aspects of our show right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Because I did did do a lot of research. He did the book and I did a lot of research on the Pinocchio 1940 Walt Disney film. Yes, yes. Uh, hopefully this isn't too repetitive because we have discussed it a little bit so far, but I want to make sure that you guys have the full story so that you can then appreciate a lot of the history and other things that Christian's going to go into later. They'll live. They're all drunk on like uh, eggnog and rum. And, oh, yeah. You guys uh, are having your Christmas time. And all kinds of whiskey Simply and having stuff, your so. wonderful Christmas time. So, okay. Uh, Pinocchio was released to theaters by RKO Radio Pictures on February 23rd, 1940. Mm-hmm. It received immediate critical acclaim. And it became the first animated feature to win a competitive Academy Award, which it won two for Best Music Original Score and Best Music Original Song for When You Wish Upon a Star. Damn, wow. But despite all this, it initially struggled at the box office. <laughs> Don't they all? Don't they all? A lot of uh, a lot of people say that this was probably due to World War II. No kidding. And that cut off the markets in Europe. So they couldn't, you know, advertise it the way that they might have otherwise. Why couldn't people go to the movies? What? <laughs> A war shouldn't stop people from having a good time. This this film to come out. However, it did eventually make a profit when it was reissued in 1945, and it is now considered one of the greatest animated films ever made. It has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow! It cost more than twice what Snow White did to make. So the initial box office uh, bomb yeah. was pretty difficult to recover from in terms of, you know, the production studio and the executives and everything. But obviously it was worth the investment because it remains one of Disney's most acclaimed uh, animated features of all time. Mm -hmm. Disney's and the world at large, I I guess I should say. Yeah. Well, yeah, it it permeates Disney culture and 
a number of ways. It did. And I am excited to tell you some of those ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we kind of talked about how they were having trouble with the story for this film because right. of the adaptation of the book. And it was so difficult to make Pinocchio a likable character. Yeah, yeah. They brought this idea in during the 1930s. An animator named Norman Ferguson was animating Snow White uh, in 1937. And he brought a translated copy yeah. to Walt Disney. And he said yeah. uh, Walt was, quote, busting his guts with enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so they really wanted to adapt this. It struck a chord with Walt, clearly, but they were having so much trouble with um, Pinocchio as a character. Yeah. And it was becoming very important for the Disney company in terms of their reputation and what they were doing with animation to animate for personality. Right. And they were really the first studio to pioneer acting in animation, acting mm -hmm. with paper and pencil. And this was a revolutionary way of thinking about animation at the time. Yeah. And this is why Disney's, I mean, it's why Disney's the best. It's why Disney is what it is today. Right. Is because they pioneered this idea of acting in animation. I remember you talking about something to do where like how the animators had to think like actors mm -hmm. for something we've, we've covered before. I, I remember talking about that too. And I think yeah. that, that all has ties back to the 1940 or 1930s really. Yeah, really. And this push at Disney studios That's cool. with these guys that I was talking about, Tyla, Babbitt, Fred Moore, mm -hmm. but also several other animators that became part of Disney's nine old men and others. Disney actually commissioned a storyboard artist named Bianca Majoli. Okay. Uh, she worked on Peter Pan and Cinderella. She was one of the very few women that were working yeah, I was gonna say at woman. Disney at the time. That's cool. Uh, but she, he commissioned her to write a new story outline adapting the book. All right. But he read it and he felt like her outline was too faithful to the book. And he wanted to part from it more. Right, right, right. So he appointed Ben Sharpstein, uh, who was sequence director for Snow White, as production supervisor. Um, some hmm. sources say he was supervising director also. Yeah. And Jack Kinney as director. So Ben went on to work on Fantasia, Dumbo, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, oh, nice. Cinderella, and dozens of other documentaries and like wonderful world of Disney projects. Right. And Jack directed like a mind-blowing amount of short films, a lot of Disney short films. Um, some were educational. One of them was a health video about menstruation from the 60s, <laughs> like probably that they're still airing in health classes today. That's great. It was this guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was like the adventure <laughs> it's a, it's a of menstruation or something, right? Yeah. yeah. Gotta be a man. He knows all about it. But I do think it's funny because I think that those things are pretty enduring. Like yeah. they don't update them very often. Right. Certainly not as often as they, they should be. No, all that stuff is so old. Yeah. Uh, he also directed Dumbo, The Three Caballeros, The Adventures of Big Bottom, Mr. Toad, Peter Pan. He was uncredited as a director of Peter Pan. I don't understand. Weird. A Thousand and One Arabian Nights and The Jungle Book. Wow. It's amazing. Animation on Pinocchio began in January 1938, but the work on Pinocchio's character and his animation and his personality was discontinued as they were trying to rework his characterization yeah. and the whole structure of the film as a narrative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they started working on the supporting characters again in April of 1938, and then they wouldn't resume full animation until September of 1938. Hmm. When they finally figured out all their shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. So they take it like piece for piece like that. They, they'll they like pick a character mm -hmm. and then they figure do. out how to animate that character. They sure do. They study they each character. Before they introduce it to the man. Mm -hmm. That's wild. <laughs> it is wild. And the, oh I'll explain some techniques that they used, even though I don't fully understand them myself. And everybody, you can yell at me about what I get wrong. But hey. they were figuring things out 
like techniques of animation that were used well into the Disney Renaissance. And as people started moving into digital animation, like classic animation, they were doing the thing. Yeah. Like they were inventing it as they did it. Wow. Which is crazy. That's awesome. But we keep we keep talking about it. We keep saying it. Pinocchio was a very difficult character, not only to animate, but to give life to. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> Take a drink. They were trying to modernize this character, and they wanted to depict him similar to uh, Edgar Bergen's very popular like vaudeville dummy named Charlie McCarthy. Mm-hmm. So this was a character at the time that would have been super well-known in pop culture. Yeah. He was a dummy, you know, literal vaudeville right, right. ventriloquist dummy. Yeah. And they wanted to make him like that dummy that people knew. God, I'd kill to go back and watch a vaudeville show. I know. Just like that's the earliest form of well, this no, type of- Well, no, before that, there was like Commedia dell'arte stuff too. Yeah. Which some of that's referenced in the book, Pinocchio book from the 1880s. Crazy. So he's referencing puppet shows Pu- yeah. and things. Puppet shows really, yeah. Like that's true. From that it's time. So- and there was all, before that, before that, there was Punch and Judy, mm-hmm. medieval puppetry. Yeah. Anyway, oh sorry. My God. Not to, yeah, not we could go like on ruin. a whole puppetry history. It keeps going. It goes back so far. Yeah. There not that, so not many that Commedia dell'arte was puppets necessarily, but they were people pretending to be pup. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> so the story was still being developed and in the early stages of animation. And at this point, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston, they were two of the men that became the nine old men. They weren't very old at the time. I see. They animated Pinocchio to look very wooden and puppet-like. Yeah. And Walt ended up, this is when he halted production. And he was like, people aren't going to empathize with this. We've got a character that's all wood, no heart. <laughs> Can't do it. All wood, no heart. He wanted to stop. It sounds like a Jiminy Cricket quote. It really kind of does. He was all wood, no heart. Oh man, you do a good Jiminy. (laughs) I've been practicing. That's pretty good. I still can't do his his high pitched tones. He does. He He hits those Mickey Mouse tones. I can't do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he does. He sounds a lot like Mickey. I looked him up to see if he was Mickey. I was like, no, it's Walt Disney. But then Mm -hmm. I was like, did Walt voice Jiminy Cricket? Oh my god, and it it wasn't. It was somebody else. When Walt didn't like this design, this led to a new design by an animator named Milt Call. Hmm. And he wanted to think of Pinocchio first as this cute little boy right. and add touches that made him look wooden, like the joints and the nose and everything after the fact. Sure. So he animated a test sequence where Pinocchio was underwater looking for his father <laughs> and Walt loved this look. Yeah. Walt was like, we figured it out. We nailed it. This is Pinocchio. Um, he had much softer features. He had also gloves like Mickey Mouse. <laughs> so he yeah. had the team like adapt the character over the whole film to match the look of this test sequence. And this also lent to his more naive and innocent personality than the character in the book as well. Yeah, that was one thing I read was that Disney decided to take this ultimate goal of becoming a real boy and going ahead and basically making him a real boy from from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Like, let's just start with him as a real boy and then he can earn it later. Kind of. Kind of I mean, like yeah. that's kind of the uh, the critical analysis of what they did with the I movie. I think because they wanted him to be relatable. To make him more relatable, else. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the shift also made the character almost too gullible. Yeah. So in the summer of 1938, they're figuring out what they want to do with Pinocchio, but they need to figure out how to solve this problem of him just being too gullible and going along with every whim. And this is when they conceived of the character Jiminy Cricket. Okay. 
In the original story, I'm sure you read this, Christian, listener, just in case you don't know or you haven't read the book. I haven't read the book either. Um, I've read the entire book twice. In the original story, the cricket is a minor character that Pinocchio squishes with a mallet. I was going to tell you that. Yeah, and he returns later as a ghost. Like, hello, Jacob Marley. Hello, the consequences of my actions. Stepping on my toes. But Walt instead named this character, Jiminy, (laughs) himself, and expanded the character quite a lot. Uh Uh-huh. At first, he was drawn as a more realistic cricket with antenna and the spindly legs and everything. Uh-huh. And animator Ward Kimball, it's kind of a funny story. They, they tell it in one of the, I, I used for reference, the making of Pinocchio documentary. But they talk about Ward Kimball. He was apparently becoming kind of disillusioned with his career at Disney Studios mm-hmm. due to the fact that he spent months of his life on a couple of sequences for Snow White, including the famous, like, deleted scene with all the soup, where all the dwarves are eating soup. No. I don't know if you've seen that. I've seen it around a whole, whole lot. I don't know why. Uh-uh. But Walt called Ward into his office and was like, hate to break it to you, but I have to cut these sequences because they break up the plot too much. Like, it, it slows down the story. So yeah. this guy spent months of his life. Oh, these, these were his pride and joy, and they just got chopped out of Snow White. So in order to kind of make amends for that, Walt appointed appointed Ward Kimball to be the supervising animator for Jiminy Cricket. Wow. Which, looking back at that now, Jiminy Cricket is one of the most, (laughs) yeah, Jiminy Cricket is one of the most well-known, most revered Disney characters, I guess I could say. And this was Ward Kimball. Yeah, wow. (laughs) And as they were animating him, Walt just kept telling him to make it cute, make it cute. Yeah. Uh, so you lost the antenna. In the documentary, you can see like a progression, right? Where mm-hmm. the first one looks like a real cricket on, you know, horizontal cricket. <laughs> and then as you move sure. through, he beca- he stands up and he gets a hat. And <laughs> the evolution he has of cricket. The <laughs> it's like going, going it from is. like monkey he to evolves. man. Yes. He evolves to the Jiminy that we know, so which is essentially, they basically said just like an egg-headed man without ears. <laughs> and... The only real reason that you know that uh-huh. Jiminy Cricket is a cricket is because they called him a cricket, is what Kimball said. <laughs> oh, uh, cricket's the name. Jiminy Cricket. Kimball said you wouldn't know he was a cricket otherwise, but that's what Walt... Right, no. But that's what Walt wanted like eventually. That's, that's great, though. Yeah. I love Jiminy Cricket, man. I didn't know how to describe him. I never wrote it down. He, he's got this, like, Dick Van Dyke mm-hmm. uh, hobo look to him. Yes. Like a wandering a, kind of guy. Mm-hmm. He is. He's kind of a vagabond. A Jiminy Cricket. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. He's a traveler. He's a wise guy. He knows. Mm. He's been around the block. He's got that street smarts to him. Mm-hmm. A lot of people talk about the irony yeah. in Pinocchio, which I think we'll get into, and I don't want to get into too much because there's a lot that we could say. Yeah. But he's a character that's very ironic. He's always kind of commenting on the thing. He's saying the quiet thing out loud yeah. always. Right, right, right. Which to me felt, watching it again, felt so modern. Mm-hmm. It really did. I was like, whoa, like this modernized the story completely. Even though like, he was that Dick Van Dyke, he had the, the 40s way of speaking. Mm-hmm. The way that he inserted himself and the commentary that he had still felt so modern right. to me. I'll say this here. I was going to do mm-hmm. a, a quick breakdown on Jiminy, but I'll just go ahead and say what I had. Go ahead. Um, in the book, like you said, he plays almost no part. He's only, he's known only as the talking cricket. Mm-hmm. And the only true purpose he serves is to serve Pinocchio a bit of sage wisdom in chapter four. And like you said, he comes back as the ghost later, which I will talk about later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, his conversation with Pinocchio is the first of many major bouts of moralistic discourse. So, Because, you know, like you said, Pinocchio was very difficult. He's a real wild card. 
in the first, mm-hmm. like the first few chapters. And he tells the cricket that he's going to run away from home and live a vagabond lifestyle from morning until night. Mm-hmm. And the cricket says, if he doesn't want to go to school, he should at least learn a trade <laughs> so he can find honest work. He does. It sounds so it's modern. It's kind of tongue in cheek and you know, modern in, in some ways, but that's, you know, that's when Pinocchio gets so angry that he throws a mallet at him and Squishes. splatters him against mm-hmm. the wall. That's pretty dark when you think about the Gemini that we know. <laughs> oh, the first of many, mm, many moments. Many, of many dark moments. Yeah, darkness. you guys might be wondering why we're covering Pinocchio oh if you God. haven't seen it in a long time. And uh, we have more, more than enough reason to talk about it on That's Pretty Dark yeah. because... It is just If you guys so just love Pinocchio, like if you're a person who like identifies with that movie and it's part of your life and you just adore it and you just can't wait to learn more about Pinocchio here, we apologize in advance for ruining your Christmas. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, sorry. sorry. I mean, but honestly though, it's, like I said, I thought I was going to really dislike rewatching it and I didn't. I enjoyed it very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I liked it. So yeah. and, it's not um, that I don't like it, but it is, it is very dark. My last little note about Jiminy here, and I'll let you get back to it, is... Um, there's a lot of thinly veiled sexual humor too. Oh, when it comes hmm. to old Jiminy, really? Like he's perpetually aroused by all the other female characters in the I, movie. Oh, he is that. You That's never true. noticed You're that. Right. You're right. That's like, true. Like it's just but always him kind of like going. That, I guess. He's blushing. He's always like he does. flirting and dancing with ladies. That's true. You're um, right. He's even attracted to the blue fairy, which is why he oh, does what she so. asks. Mm-hmm. I mean, when he's at the, at the puppet show later, when he's like. Whoa, like watching the, the marionettes dance on stage. He does, yeah. Because they're flipping up their skirts and stuff. Yep. And he's like, and yeah, he's like, oh, uh, hey. Yeah, he, he reacts to that. You're right. Anyway, like it's crazy sexual undertones. Sexism is what it really amounts to because it, it was objectifying women the whole time. Well, that's, yeah. That's the culture that, of the time, you know, of the wild. moment. That's all that was, is a man reacting to a woman in 1940. <laughs> like, you mean then? We're still seeing that now. Like that's just perpetual. <laughs> Fair. It's just never stopped. <sighs> Fair but enough. it's it gets more and more shocking the further back you see it in time. You're like, 1940s. I guess that's true, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it was also the day of the time of uh well, we'll see it in this movie. Unchecked misogyny. The drinking, the smoking, it's a kid's movie, and these it's just debaucherous later. Mm-hmm. But we'll get to it. Now we're talking about production and animation. <laughs> Sorry for the quick derail, but no, no. We got it, we got into Jim and so I had to, I had to talk about old Jim. We got a lot to say. Not as much of a saint as you might think. Let's just say that much. Honestly, yeah. In my head, I had him kind of made out to be like the practically perfect in every way, sort of a Mary Poppins character. And he's yeah, not but it makes at him all. more human, even though he's a cricket. I like him better this way, besides the misogyny. I mean, but, you know, I'm attracted to women. I don't think I'm misogynistic, you know. I, I guess might that's flirt. true. He's just attracted to I them. don't think it makes me misogynist. I think he's it makes the animators him, but- a little bit questionable. But hey, that's Disney animation. We have we have we've yet to do a whole episode on questionable Disney animation. Oh yeah, we there's so much we could say. We were supposed to do that this past year, and we didn't do it. <laughs> we really were because it was too overwhelming, y'all. That's why we didn't do it. If you're wondering why, that's why. We'll get to it. It was too much. We'll get there eventually. 2023. So, continuing with some of the discussion about the animation of the film. Mhm. They pioneered a lot of animation techniques, and I'm not even fully sure I understand all of them. Oh, yeah, here we go. Some of them I do. <laughs> one of them being the fact that one of the story artists named Joe Grant formed a whole department at the studio to create 3D models, 3D clay models of oh. all of the characters in the film. Okay. These were called maquettes. All right. And they were given to the animating staff so that they could see the characters from any conceivable angle that they might need to draw them from. This tradition has carried on throughout Disney animation and other studios as well. Um, I know you've seen a lot of behind the scenes, or you may have, listener, but I know Christian, you've seen a lot of behind the scenes of animating different 
films. Yeah. And that's why they always have these 3D models is to be able to look at the character in a 3D space. I've seen these before. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had them for everything. They have them at Pixar. It's still a thing. It's ringing a bell. But these maquettes, they built them so that they could study the angles of the characters, basically. Yeah. And like Snow White, live action footage was also shot for Pinocchio with the actors playing the scenes in pantomime. Yeah. Rather than tracing the film from this live action footage, the animators just use this footage as a guide to study the human movement or animal movement, I guess, and incorporating some of those poses into the animation. So they just used it to play back and study over and over and over. Right. Although I did want to note, because it's kind of in contrast to those things, Frank Thomas is credited with animating Pinocchio's movements while he was an actual marionette when Geppetto mimes mm. him around the room. Oh my God, that scene. And when his reflection is seen in like Cleo's bowl and everything. Yeah. Frank Thomas said that this was especially challenging because there was no way to shoot that live. They didn't have a puppet. He didn't know what they were. he was going to look like fully for a long time. Right. Um, so he had to make this up out of his own head. <laughs> and uh, Ollie Johnston animated the classic scene where Pinocchio's nose grows, like you were talking about. Yeah. And Eric Larson is responsible for animating the character of Figaro. Oh, man. Which is my ca- favorite character, Walt's favorite character, <laughs> Christian's yeah. favorite character. Yeah. I love So Figaro. a lot of these guys kind of came in, and some of them were animating things that they had to make up, and some of them were animating things that they could see with their eyes. Like, right, yeah. they had the actress that played the Blue Fairy mime a lot of her scenes. Yeah, well, she she but, was a different type of animation herself. She looks very ethereal and strange. She's like see-through. It's really, well, really weird. I'm glad that you bring that up because this film was also especially groundbreaking in terms of effects animation. Yeah. The effects animation for Pinocchio was led by Joshua Mador, Mador of Columbus, Mississippi, which I noted oh. because a lot of my family is from there, and I think he may be buried near some of my family. Yeah, that's wild. Which is kind of crazy. Maybe they're friends now. Maybe they all hang out in the... Friendship Cemetery is where he's buried, and I'm pretty sure that's where my family is, too. Friendship? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. They're all hanging out and having a good time. They're all friends. (laughs) I think so. But everything from vehicles and machinery to the natural effects like rain, lightning, snow, smoke, shadows, water, Mm. as well as some of the fantasy-type effects, like the magic effects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So effects animator Sandy Strother kept a diary about his year-long animation of the water effects. Mm -hmm. It took, like, all year he just animated water. That was all he did. Wow. He added ripples and splashes, bubbles, waves. It's it's impressive. It It is is notable. Agreed. Like, watching it back. The rain is just phenomenal. The rain, the reflections on the water. Lord have mercy. It's so pretty. It's so pretty. And it's, it's no wonder that this is kind of the standard for effects animation. Yeah. This film. It set the bar mm-hmm. real high. Apparently, after the animation was traced onto cells, the assistant animators would trace it again with blue and black pencil leads to give the waves a more sculpted look. Hmm. A lot of these techniques enabled Pinocchio to be one of the first animated films to have highly realistic effects. Yeah. Ollie Johnson said uh, he thinks it's one of the finest things a studio has ever done. Uh, he said the water looks so real that a person could drown in it and they do <laughs> yeah <laughs> he was quoting frank thomas when he said that they were kind of a duo just fun yeah that's funny but they they spent a year just on the water and you can see it you can it paid off is my yeah, what i'm trying sure. to say like it definitely paid off yeah they also built working models of geppetto's cuckoo clocks <laughs> which i'm sure we need to discuss we yeah anytime really. about stromboli's gypsy wagon and the wooden carriage hmm. 
but because it was so difficult to animate moving vehicles, they filmed the carriage maquettes using stop-motion animation and transferred each frame of the film onto animation cells. So they filmed it. They did the stop-motion thing, just like Nightmare Before Christmas or any of the stop-motion that we think of today. Right. Then these cells were painted and overlaid on top of background images to create a completed shot when they filmed it all together. So they had different panes of different characters it's why they could add so much depth right, yeah, um, there's a lot to the to scene because they had background that moved independently mm-hmm. of the characters. And this was kind of one of the first times that had ever been done. Would have been the animated Italian Pinocchio. Right. Would have been. It's kind of appropriate that we're doing this for Christmas, though, because Lux Radio Theater on the CBS network with Cecil B. DeMille as the presenter yeah. broadcast a version of Pinocchio on Christmas Day, 1939. Oh, wow. So prior to the movie coming out, yeah, he broadcast it on CBS. That's awesome. And the program featured the performers who did the voices in the film. Hmm. So it was before the movie came out. They did like a condensed version for radio oh, yeah, yeah. on Christmas Day. Wow. Kind of cool. Like a, like a marketing kind yeah, of. Yeah, exactly. Like a press event, yeah. basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very cool. I want to talk about the first half hour yeah the first third of the movie which is equal to the first seven chapters of the book nice and talk about how they differ sounds like a plan so in the opening frame we meet jiminy cricket resting atop a copy of pinocchio the book and we also see alice in wonderland and peter pan there too which i think is interesting because they wouldn't make those films for like another decade Mm -hmm. but old jiminy is singing the quintessential disney tune when you wish upon a star Where'd that come from? Oh, man. Tell me about it. I would love to tell you because it means, it just means so much to me (laughs) as a song. (laughs) Truly, it became the Disney theme, Mm -hmm. really. The songs in Pinocchio were composed by Lee Harleen with lyrics by Ned Washington. Okay. Uh, Harleen and Paul J. Smith composed the score. And then there was another composer that did an underscore for the Monstro Chase sequence. Mm. which was Leo Arnaud. Gotcha. The soundtrack itself was released on February 9th, 1940, and Jiminy Cricket's song, When You Wish Upon a Star, became a major hit from this soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, It's obviously still identified with the film, and later, like I said, as the theme song of the Walt Disney Company itself. See, I I had a second where I was like, was this written for the movie, or did this song exist already apart from the movie? But I guess it was written for it. It was written for this movie. Yeah. That is where it originated. It when you wish upon a star, the song the movie. became bigger than this film. Wow. It's crazy to me because this was never really like my go-to Disney movie, right? Like it wasn't the one that I yeah, went I, back to over and over. I know I watched but it this multiple song, times. But this song was. Yeah. This song has meant so much to me from the time I was a tiny, tiny child throughout my life. Mm-hmm. The Library of Congress deemed Cliff Edwards' recording of the song, that's the voice of Jiminy Cricket, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant and inducted it into the National Recording Registry in 2009. Okay. The American Film Institute actually ranked When You Wish Upon a Star 7th in their 100 Greatest Songs in Film History. Wow. It's the highest ranked of only four Disney animated film songs to appear on that list. (laughs) If you're curious, which I was. Tell me, I'm super curious. (laughs) The others were Someday My Prince Will Come Mm -hmm. from Snow White, which was ranked at number 19. Beauty and the Beast from Beauty and the Beast, which was ranked at number 62. (laughs) And Hakuna Matata from The Lion King, which was number 99. (laughs) 
Man, it's like almost, it's crazier to think about the songs or the things that these things beat. Like, I know the song beat those. Yeah. And then, like, oh, yeah, it did. Pinocchio beat all these other books in like mm-hmm. translation numbers. Yeah. It's almost crazy to look at it from that perspective. It's true. In Japan, Sweden, Finland, Norway, and Denmark, this song has become a Christmas song. Oh, really? Often referring to the Star of Bethlehem. You know what, though? It <laughs> what? popped up. Uh, so I like to get a little bit sexy Christmas oh, jazz sometimes. But just for me and the cats at home. Sure. I got a fire in the hearth. I got some mm-hmm. whiskey. I put on some Christmas jazz. I mean, I'm an old man. We've already established this. Right. Well, I light a candle for myself and make a nice dinner. But listen... <laughs> When You Wish Upon a Star came on a Christmas playlist. My Christmas playlist this past mm-hmm. week. And I was like, yeah. my head exploded. Because it wasn't a Christmas song. You know, no. it came out in February. I don't think of it as a Christmas song, but it, it, yeah, it happened. But in these countries, it became ubiquitous with Christmas. Mm, that's wild. Uh, it also, obviously, as a song, has become the icon of the Walt Disney Company. In the 50s and 60s, Disney used the song in opening sequences of all of the editions of the Walt Disney TV series. Yeah. It's also been used to accompany the Disney logo, including the present day logo since the 80s. Mm-hmm. The Still there. Da, 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 mm-hmm. Like when you open up a Disney movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I like when they go dark with it and there's like thunderstorms and it goes like, dun, 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 dun. it's like yeah. you know, organs and stuff. Every version. It's like Frank and Weenie does that. It's super fun. <laughs> it's always when you I wish think you the new Maleficent does that. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Whatever. I'm sure the Maleficent. Live does. action original. I found this kind of funny. I did not know this before. If you're a Disney fan or a Disney Parks fan, you'll appreciate this. All of the ships on the Disney Cruise Line use the first seven notes of the song's melody as their horn signals. (laughs) I didn't know that. I have friends who have done those Disney cruises, but that's wild. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? (laughs) It would get old fast. (laughs) No, I think it's magical. (laughs) It would never get old to me. Um, Magic never dies, I guess. Of course. It also brought about and inspired many productions at Disney theme parks, particularly firework shows and parades. Yeah. Including my very favorite firework show of all time. Mm. It's one of the things on planet Earth that I love the most. If you know me, you know it. I've referenced it all the time. Yeah. I reference it all the time. Yeah. I have the poster on my wall, the <laughs> same poster that's in the uh, the Disney train station at Magic Kingdom, yeah, which is the Wishes Firework Wishes. Show. Right. Uh, the song is in that Firework Show, but Jiminy Cricket is also featured prominently in that show yes, as well. Yes, that's that's really where most of my memories of that song and Jiminy Cricket come from. Same here. Being Same a, being here part of a Disney Wishes family Firework show. and going to Disney and yeah, mm-hmm. seeing the Wishes Show. Hearing Wishes as a young child, you know, okay, so Wishes was from 2003 and it ended in 2017. Mm-hmm. So when I was, you know, 11, from the time I was 11, anytime I went to Disney, I'd watch the Wishes Firework Show. Right. And Wishes was the firework show that was in place when I worked at Disney in 2012. Right, yeah. So all Same of my memories my are tied there. in. Yeah. They're tied into Wishes as a show, which means this song, which is basically the central element, like the recurring theme of that show, yeah. is also tied in just to every Disney memory I have. Yeah. So I love it so much. I love it too. I mean, I really do. But the song, yeah, the song really did, not to say that it outlived the movie, because like you're saying, we still have all these adaptations and all these um, Pinocchio stories coming today. A lot of them, I think, because of the way that the 1940 Disney film popularized the story. Because like the other two movies before it didn't make it, Mm -hmm. you know, who knows? True. Who knows? But this song 
still mm-hmm. outgrew the boundaries of the film for Disney. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I apologize, listener, if you're not a Disney person, but you had to listen to a Disney person go on her Disney rant really quick. <laughs> uh, it's one of the most like it. well-recognized songs ever. And I think for good reason. Deal with it. Because it embodies the whole idea of Disney magic, yeah. which, you know, you can say is a capitalistic, money-grabbing, <laughs> disgusting thing. And you're not wrong. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with you about that. <laughs> you're like giving but it's them also, things to argue. <laughs> you're like, but you it, could say it's that true. it's ruined lives if you want, I you, guess. You could say that and it would be true. But it also <laughs> embodies that hope. It does. The hope that we all have. Mm-hmm. This song is that quintessential Disney hope. You're hoping for your wishes to come true. Right. Right. And I don't have a lot of hope. <laughs> I'm a pretty yeah. cynical person. You have to get it where you uh So I got to get it where it can. comes. And this is one of the major sources of that for me. Gotta get it when it comes. So, Jiminy's singing this song <laughs> like he does. And from this point forward, as we've kind of talked about Jiminy becomes something of a narrator. I bet a lot of you folks don't believe that. Which coming true? Do you? Well, I didn't either. Let me tell you what made me change my mind. And he spends a lot of time breaking the fourth wall. He does. And talking to the audience directly, acting as a guide of sorts for us while doing a pretty poor job of being a guide for Pinocchio. True. <laughs> he's a better guide for us than for Pinocchio. He, well, it's all hindsight, you know? He's learned a lot in his time as Pinocchio's conscience. But in the movie, Jiminy sneaks into a cozy wood carver's hut in the middle of the sleepy old town, pretty as a picture, with crooked streets. There's a warm fire and all manner of wooden trinkets. We have clocks, music boxes, toys, and of course, there's a puppet. And these clocks are crazy. <laughs> do you want to talk about these clocks right <laughs> oh, now? Oh, can we? Yeah. Do it either either clocks. now or when he's trying to sleep. Yeah. Or while they're dancing around that. Uh, oh the my hut. God. There, there are so, so many, many times, times. To talk about the clocks. Geppetto's, he's a wood carver mm-hmm. and he makes these things and his house is full of them. Mm-hmm. And they become animated and they become part of, they're, they're almost personified in their own way. Yeah. They become part of the world. Mm-hmm. Like later when Joanie's trying to sleep and he yells, you know, quiet. <laughs> Which is so funny to me. And everything, all it all goes silent. The clocks stop. Like they mm-hmm. they listen to him. I like when Jiminy says, After all, enough's enough. After all, enough's enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, enough's enough. That just made me crack up. I, I, was do, like, I did love that. You're right, Jiminy. Enough is enough sometimes. You know what, Jiminy? You're damn right. You're damn right, Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> that has like some classic Looney Tunes uh, oh, yeah. Laws Legends. of like Definitely. physics and nature of how things work. Anyway, but in a cartoon, yeah. W- what do you have on the clocks? Because it's just, it's just true chaos. Um, I That's don't have a whole lot other than the fact that they did make working models of those clocks. What? Like they did with, yeah, like they did with a lot of other, you know, <laughs> characters. That's they, cool. they made models of the clocks too because they wanted to, the animators to be able to see how they moved. Sure. And I think that that does come through in the animation. Oh my God. However, what also comes through in the animation is how dark a lot of these clocks are. Mm-hmm. And of course, in the 40s, this was played, they were played as a joke, right? We see a clock with a turkey sticking his <laughs> neck out about to be chopped, his head about to yeah. be chopped off. <laughs> it is funny. There's the mom spanking a child, oh, his bare booty. <laughs> there are a ton of animated butts in this movie. There are. There are just a there, lot. There is a, a lot of emphasis on butts in general. Yeah. There's a lot mm-hmm. of butt humor, a lot of sexual butt uh, interaction between um, <laughs> Jiminy. And other ladies behinds. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. 
It is crazy. I mean, there I probably could have counted. If you would. I three would have dozen butts at the in time in 1940. This would have been considered improper in some ways, but I feel like to them, you know, but it's gentle kid parenting humor. wasn't a thing. Kids laugh so, at butts. Butts are funny. I guess so. And gentle parenting was many, many decades from making an appearance. So mm. that woman was just whooping up on that kid. But what I, what struck me, Whoop-a. no pun intended, Whoop-a. about the clocks was the sounds that they make. I know. Because when I watched this back, I was like, I don't know where this has lived in my brain for the past 20... It's there. Seven years. It was there, though. I was maybe three, but it was there. All of these clocks, all of these sounds were deeply, mm-hmm. deeply just pushed into my brain somewhere. It's wild. And when I saw it again, I was screaming. I was like, the clocks, the clocks, I remember the clocks, the turkey. <laughs> like, I knew it yeah. all so well, even though I haven't seen this movie since I was probably a toddler. Mm-hmm. Crazy. But the it's sounds wild. that they make, that was like the biggest thing for me. I was like, oh my God. The sound design in this movie, I can't say it's, it is, it's good. It's amazing. But I can't say that it's good in a positive way. Like it's, it, it like got under my skin. Some of the the clarity of the sounds was so unnerving to me. Intense. I that's on purpose though. Yeah. I think they did exactly what they meant to do because it was the same way for me in that moment when you're talking about when Jimmy's trying to sleep and the clocks won't stop. The sounds all have the drips texture. The drips of the like that's that's that is my nightmare scenario. Oh god, I know. As an ADHD person who can't tune out sounds that are (laughs) repetitive. Yeah. That (laughs) is my nightmare. And those sounds, again, like you said, they did. They got under my skin, And they too. claim ADHD is a noob thing. It's nope. always been around. Yep. So he's warming himself by the fire, <laughs> his animated butt by the fire. And Geppetto comes downstairs and paints a smile on the puppet. And I'm going to also just make a quick note there yep. that I feel like some of this, there are echoes of this movie in things that we know and love. Mm-hmm. The clocks, the music boxes, etc., the shadows, the way that they move, the way that Jiminy walks up amongst them and in between them. Right. There are echoes of this in The Great Mouse Detective. Mm. Mm-hmm. I could see it. I could see it all. Like those animators had to have studied. I think there was a lot that was pulled from this. I, I recognized a lot of stuff yeah, in other they had Disney to have movies studied this. From, the, from this movie. As well as just the concept, the moment where he paints the smile on Pinocchio reminded me a lot of Toy Story. Oh, yes. My God. You're right. This was the OG. <laughs> but there was also the Queen of Hearts. Mm-hmm. But Alice in Wonderland wasn't made for 10 more years. Mm-hmm. But you could see her face. You could see her face. But also the evil queen in Snow White had just been made. So a lot of oh, the... maybe it was her. The same, probably the same ideas were used uh, yeah. in animating those characters. But there are also just a ton of faces in Geppetto's hut. Like there's just mm-hmm. an insane number of faces everywhere. And it goes back to what we were saying about these animators being the backbone of Disney for decades after the fact. Yeah. And a lot of the little details like Figaro's blanket and Geppetto's pipe, oh I remembered them yes. so, so well. For me, it was the, the candle. That he snuffs out the candle with yeah. the face and he has like, mm-hmm. it looks like he has like hair and a hat and like a mouth. Yeah. yeah. It's so crazy how much of that stayed in my head. I don't understand it because I, I couldn't have told you before when, when I was getting ready, like preparing to watch it for this episode. Yeah. I couldn't have told you any of those things, but watching it, I immediately yeah. remembered everything. I'm sure, And but, also, I'm sure there's a ton of trivia there too with like the, the animation and like sure. what, what you can see if you're looking for it. Yeah. I didn't do all that research because that was, my head was going to explode. No, no worries. I have, I might have some. I don't Man. know. Anyway. All right. So there's just, see, there's so much to talk about. <clears throat> mm-hmm. But so he, he paints the smile on, on this puppet and names him Pinocchio. 
and he makes a really big deal about naming him Pinocchio. And this strikes me as funny because there's a big deal about that in the book too. Hmm. Geppetto, when he's going to make the puppet in the book, he's talking to himself and he says, I think I'll call him Pinocchio. That name will bring him good luck. I once knew a whole family of Pinocchios. There was Pinocchio the father, Pinocchia the mother, and Pinocchii, the children. And they all got along splendidly. <laughs> oh, no. Like he's just like going on and on and on talking, talking to himself. Talking to himself. <laughs> yeah. Poor guy. I know. Well, he's just as lonely as the movie Geppetto, but he doesn't have sure. a little kitty and he doesn't have a, a fish. The kitty and the fish are what make it, man. Oh, I know. You got to have the kitty and the fish. Walt knew that. Pinocchio is a rare Tuscan word for pine nut. Mm -hmm. Pino is the Italian word for pine. Mm -hmm. So it could be indicative of pine tree or pine wood. The type of wood that he is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And people all just say he's made of pine because of that reason. Mm -hmm. Pino could also be an abbreviation of the name Giuseppino, which is a diminutive for Giuseppe. And another Tuscan diminutive for Giuseppe is Geppetto. So it's like it's like a Russian nesting doll of names. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he names the father Geppetto. He names the father Giuseppe and he names the son Giuseppe, uh -huh. basically. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because- That's kind of cute because then it, it's an Italian pun because it doubles as pine. <laughs> exactly. Perfect. And these diminutives for Giuseppe probably come from Giuseppe Azzi, who was something of a father figure to Carlo Collodi when he was a teenager. Uh -huh. But I'll talk about him later in part two. But like we said before, there was a kitty and a fish. Mm -hmm. Figaro is the most adorable kitten the ever. The moment that to I saw animated. Figaro, and I don't even remember as a kid. Like I love him. I don't remember him as a kid. I don't remember him but at all. I knew I saw his face and I said, "That's Figaro." I knew who it was and Cleo too. <laughs> That's Figaro. But it was like I knew it was Figaro. Yeah. And I knew that I loved Figaro. Yeah, I love Figaro. He's my favorite. And of course, we have Cleo, Geppetto's little water baby. <laughs> she is sweet, but she's not as cute she as uh, Figaro. No, we both are partial to cats. If you guys oh haven't been around the block with us, and that's pretty dark. I'm um, researching this. I'm watching the movie, and I look over at Atlas, and I'm like, "Oh, you're like a grown-up Figaro." <laughs> like he, he's he a is. Gray, His personality little, would be closest of the cats of our four cats. White whiskered little baby boy. Little tuxedo Figaro. So, uh, you mentioned this earlier. One of the moments I remember best from this whole opening is when Geppetto dances around with Pinocchio. Mm-hmm making all kinds of fun with this new puppet and annoying Figaro, which is totally something I would do to my cats. Mm -hmm. But it always unnerved me, probably because of the sound design with the clickety-clackety of him on the floor. Mm -hmm. But like having seen the movie multiple times as a kid and knowing that Pinocchio is alive and real and all this stuff, mm -hmm. it unnerved me to see him playing with a lifeless Pinocchio. Sure, like, yes. It, it came off in my skewed, nonlinear childhood memories as Geppetto, Dancing Playing around with, with a corpse. Corpse. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then I watched it again this past week for the first time in probably 25 years. It just made me uncomfortable again. Definitely. I was like, whoa. Definitely, yeah. Whoa, mm -hmm. that goes back so far. That hit me too. And I think that they make a point to talk about the person that animated that because it was so difficult to animate. Mm. Well done. Those and make it feel like wood. And it did. It felt so different yeah, from Pinocchio. It feels so different. But in like oh a God. very, like the realism in this animation of Figaro as an animal, mm -hmm. they were just learning how to animate animals. Yep. Really? I mean, that was just and the start of, of cute, in this movie to cute animate. Disney animals. Yeah. I mean, there were already some in Snow White, of course, but they weren't quite as cute mm -hmm. as those that come later. Right. That was more and like- And Walt wanted them all to be more cute. And then we found Thumper- you know, and, and then Thumper came. Uh, right. Oh, what's the skunk's name? Bambi? Oh, from Bambi. I don't know. Oh my god, how do I not remember that? Dumper, skunker, <laughs> no, stinky, no, 
flower. Oh, right. Ironic Flower. Name. Got it. Man, Bambi would probably <laughs> undo me because I, I was yeah. so worried about watching Pinocchio, like I said. Yeah. I was so worried about watching Pinocchio because I was scared of what it would do to my mental state. Especially after watching I'm e. way more scared to watch Bambi. Yeah, E.T. was yeah. horrific for me. So Yeah, Bambi's going to be rough, but we have to. We're, we'll do it eventually, but- Because uh, it's pretty dark. Yowch. We have to talk about it. So later, as Geppetto is going to sleep, he spots the wishing star Mm -hmm. and wishes that Pinocchio would become a real boy. Starlight, star bright, first star I see tonight. I wish I may, I wish I might have the wish I make tonight. Tell me about it. Okay. Tell me about it. So this rhyme, Mm -hmm. this was probably the first time that it was used in popular American culture. I do know that much. Like, this kind of brought it into the mainstream again. Yeah. But I think it was a late 19th century nursery rhyme that became popular. Wild. It's very, very old. So they just sort of, like, commandeered it. And I bet as soon as that copyright was over, Disney acquired it. Maybe. Yeah. I'm not sure. But it predates this movie. It predates this movie. Definitely predates this movie. Interesting. But do you know the origin of wishing on stars in general? No. Well, Please tell that's me. pretty darklings and Christian. <laughs> I'm going to have to derail and just tell you really quick because Hit me. I love that there's a reason for me to look this up for the show because mm-hmm. <laughs> wishing on stars is such a fun thing to me. I feel like I should have, but I'm glad you did. I got it. So it's thought that the act of wishing on a shooting star started during the time of a Greek astronomer named Ptolemy. You know Ptolemy? Yeah. He's like mathematician. We go way back yeah. to school. This was around 127 to 151 AD ish. Okay. And he wrote that sometimes the gods get bored and curious and they would occasionally peer down on earth. And when they would do that, some stars would slip through the gap between the spheres and become visible as falling or shooting stars. No shit. And so that's why he said that the gods were more receptive to wishes made in times like these because they're peering between the realms mm. when the stars fall down. That's so very liminal with those gods. Mm-hmm. So that's where it comes from. So this 1940s film sings this song and references this nursery rhyme from the late 19th century from a belief that goes back to 127 AD-ish. Don't tell the GOP. <laughs> oh, they already don't like Disney because it's full of magic anyway, so it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah, doesn't pretty matter. much. Wow, that's wild. Isn't it? Sorry, just had to go there. No, that's one of the funnest and coolest things I've heard on this podcast. (laughs) I kind of love it, personally. (laughs) You know what? You get five stars. Hey, thank you. You get a good review. Do I get a badge? Like Jiminy? Mm, Okay. Never mind. But with any luck, you'll get some sponsorship (laughs) in the next year. (laughs) Maybe some advertising. Yeah. Maybe one day somebody will bestow a badge of uh, relevance on us. (laughs) Yeah. If you're good enough and you work hard enough. Come on, Blue Fairy. You just might become a real podcaster. Where are you, Blue Fairy? It's cloudy here tonight. I can't I can't see her. I can't see the wishing star, but it's No, there. it's stormy tonight. It's raining right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, my. As uh, Jiminy says, I almost said Geppetto. Oh, my. And this uh, godlike star mm-hmm. <laughs> in, yes. in the sky mm-hmm. morphs into the Blue Fairy. It's the Blue Fairy. <laughs> What is he saying? Now watch up. He gets like so <laughs> mad does. about it. <laughs> what's going on? He really did. He made me he laugh. Says, what's going say. on here? He gets real Southern. Hey, what's going on here? He made me laugh. She comes to grant Geppetto's wish because he's given so much happiness to others that he deserves to have his wish come true. So, of course, the Blue Fairy gives Pinocchio life, telling him if he proves himself to be brave, truthful, 
and unselfish, then one day he will be a real boy. Her voice echoes in my head. Oh, it does. Yeah. It almost echoes in the movie too. Yeah. <laughs> it's so ethereal. And he can do this by following his conscience. So this is where, yeah, Jiminy uh, interjects himself mm -hmm. and he intervenes to explain what a conscience is because Pinocchio is brand new and he has no idea. He's brand new. You're right. Yeah. Just fell off that turnip truck. <laughs> exactly. And so <laughs> after he explains this, mm -hmm. the Blue Fairy dubs Jiminy dub Pinocchio's Pinocchio's conscience. conscience. She does. She knights him. Lord High Keeper of the Knowledge of Right and Wrong, Counselor in Moments of Temptation, and Guide along the Straight and Narrow Path. I love the Blue Fairy. She's so magical. So magical. I love her. My favorite part of this whole first half hour is scared Geppetto creeping around in the dark with a candle and a blunderbuss. <laughs> I have literally... And Figaro sneaking around between his oh feet. Oh my gosh. His little animated Figaro I was like, butt. that's me and you when we hear weird sounds in the night. Oh yeah. And we're just like shaking and going with our kitties. Absolutely. And the way that Figaro goes underneath his feet mm -hmm. and just steps with him. It's just so cute. So cute. Oh, I've definitely, um, to like really give myself a good spook, gone walking around through my house in like a blackout with a single candle, just like looking around mm -hmm. in the rooms, just, just, just looking. That just for fun. We'll do a number. On just your, for fun. I just, I did it brain. to give myself a thrill. <laughs> I didn't have a blunderbuss though, so. Can't have it all. Anyway, yada, yada, yada. Geppetto is thrilled that his wish came true and that Pinocchio is alive. And it's all very magical and poignant. And congratulations, Pinocchio. Tomorrow, you've got to go to school. Mm -hmm. And this is where the actual story begins with Pinocchio going to school. So before we get too much further, I'll just interject and let you know about the voice actors. I didn't go into all right, the details right, right. like I usually do um, for a typical movie night, but I figured we might as well give credit where credit is due. Sure. Because this film did mark the very first time that an animated feature film had used celebrities as voice actors or an animated film in general. This was oh, really? one of the first animated feature films, so not like it was had that many <laughs> yeah, yeah. before it. But it was one of the first time that celebrities had been recruited for animated roles. Mm -hmm. Cliff Edwards, as I said briefly before, he was known as Ukulele Ike, <laughs> was cast as Jiminy Cricket. He was a very, very popular Broadway and vaudeville star at the time. Uh, he actually introduced the song Singing in the Rain for the first time. Wow. Um, he was just a very, very prolific entertainer. And so everybody knew him when he you know, went to voice Jiminy Cricket, which I think is cool. Wow, that's, that's awesome. The Blue Fairy was played by Evelyn Venable, and she was also very much known at the time as an actress. She was in a lot of different films at the time. Yeah. And it's so crazy to me how these things just shift. And, you know, as when I watched this as a kid, I wouldn't have known who she was. Of course. But my yeah. grandparents probably would have, <laughs> you know. Your grandpa's puppet show. And lastly, and maybe least for the moment, I'll come back with more actors as we meet characters. Right. But Geppetto was voiced by a man named Christian Rubb. Good name. Strong name. Not such a great guy. <laughs> oh, no. Um, <laughs> apparently, according to one of the animators, uh, Christian Rubb was a pretty major Nazi sympathizer. Oh, my God. No. And he just constantly, like, told everybody how great Hitler was oh. <laughs> throughout the whole production. Oh, we told you guys we were going to ruin your Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about it. Um, oh, you sorry thought you loved it. Geppetto? Yeah. And, I mean, you can love... 
You can love Geppetto, just not maybe. Is this one of those instances where we have to separate the art from the artist? Yeah. Because I believe in that. I think that's important. Yeah, and I have to do that often. So Yeah, well. Just going to toss that out If we knew the truth about every single person ever, we'd always have to separate the art from the artist. Apparently, also, while they were doing some of the live action shooting for the animation, they had to put him on a makeshift stage where he pretended to be fishing while the stage was being jostled around by a lot of grips mm-hmm. were kind of rocking the boat. So and I guess maybe they had a little bit too much fun with that because they got to just kind of throw him around for the whole scene. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> this Nazi asshole out of here. I know. Wow. There was also an extended all, scene enough's apparently enough. talking about, after all, enough's enough. <laughs> uh, there's a scene of Geppetto telling Pinocchio about his grandfather who was a pine tree. <laughs> so. What? <laughs> Well, you were talking about him being pine earlier, and I missed that note. So. He tells Pinocchio that Pinocchio's grandfather was a pine tree? Correct. Weird. They cut it, probably for good reason. So different from the book. God, it's so different. <laughs> and speaking of how different they are, let's talk about what the book does with these first few chapters. Let's. In the book, Pinocchio begins as a sentient piece of wood. It literally starts with, once upon a time, there was a piece of wood. <laughs> And he's not Mr. Geppetto's wood, but Mr. Antonio's wood. Mm. <laughs> the wood of these two old men. Yikes. And this piece of wood is so mischievous that he insults Geppetto, who thinks it was Antonio who insulted him, so they get into an honest-to-God fist fight and bloody each other up. Oh. This book is extremely violent. Yeah. First of many fair warnings. Yikes. And it starts with these two old men beating the shit out of each other. <laughs> Geppetto's there because he's looking to make a puppet, a really fine puppet that can dance, fence, and turn somersaults in the air. And he wants to tour the world so he can get that bread and that wine. Mm -hmm. So Antonio gives the sentient piece of wood to Geppetto as sort of a fuck you. (laughs) And Geppetto builds a puppet that starts coming to life literally as he's building it. It says the eyes watch him as he moves around the room. I don't like that at all. Neither did Geppetto. I didn't even like seeing Pinocchio sitting in, oh, no. in the movie, sitting still, bl- unblinking. It's unnerving. It really is. I didn't like it. And then once he's built, Pinocchio is an instant little terror. He laughs at Geppetto, steals his wig, kicks him in the nose, and runs out the front door. So Geppetto has to chase him through town. Oh. So here are the main differences thus far in the movie. Geppetto is kind and beloved by all, and he isn't rich, but he lives comfortably enough. In the book, Geppetto is piss poor, kind of sucks, and everybody hates him. Sounds more like the uh, voice actor for the movie Geppetto. Yeah. They hate him so much that not only do the children make fun of him on a regular basis, but once Pinocchio runs through town and is caught by a policeman, the townspeople essentially accuse Geppetto of child abuse. Oh no. So the policeman lets Pinocchio go. And arrest Geppetto, who spends the night in jail. Oh, no. (laughs) I mean, to be honest, even in the film, I had multiple times where I was thinking, is this dude really going to be like the best father figure for Pinocchio? No, absolutely not. Like sending him out 
into the wild with no knowledge of anything. Go on to school. <laughs> Bye-bye. That's See just ya. as true in the book. Yeah. It's like, you're alive. Congrats. Now go be responsible and figure things out for yourself. Yeah. Which, which is why Pinocchio is kind of how life goes for a lot of us. Yeah. So it is, but you you are <laughs> you tend to be taught some things. Yeah. You should at least More be escorted that. to school. Yes. You shouldn't go on your own your first day alive ever. Like, <laughs> go figure it out, pal. Your first day alive. I agree. Yeah. That was uh, off putting to me. That's when Pinocchio goes home and meets the talking cricket and then commits voluntary manslaughter or voluntary cricket slaughter. <laughs> Squish. Squish, squash. In the movie, Pinocchio is a sweet little puppet boy who naively sets out to be good and become a real boy. Mm -hmm. In the book, Pinocchio is a shitty little devil puppet who wants nothing more than to live out his most hedonistic fantasies. Here's the thing about book Pinocchio. He's severely emotionally unstable. He's made of nothing more than hard pine and raw human emotion with all the emotional intelligence of any given six-year-old boy. Mm -hmm. In the movie, Pinocchio is dancing around the room with Geppetto celebrating the magical miracle that a puppet is alive. In the book, Pinocchio is wandering the streets, begging for food, literally starving to death. And when he goes home, all cold and wet, to fall asleep in front of a fire, he wakes up to find that he's burned his wooden feet off. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like that at all. Nope. Nobody does. My God. And then he's so grateful to Geppetto for making him new feet the next day that he agrees to go to school and be a good boy, only to decide to go to the puppet show instead, which is the beginning of his many adventures. Now, both movie Pinocchio and book Pinocchio have every intention of going to school. Sure. In the movie, Pinocchio meets Honest John, the fox, and Giddy the kitty, who see a... <laughs> little wooden puppet boy walking around without strings so they decide to make some money and sell him to the great stromboli for his marionette show mm -hmm. and jiminy overslept so pinocchio is alone and vulnerable and they lead him astray making grand claims that he'll be a famous actor an actor's life for me <laughs> what do you have on these uh these uh, voice actors or this song here yeah okay so walter catlett provided the voice for honest john foul fellow the fox <laughs> it's foul fellow name. wow foul fellow all right <laughs> he was a very popular actor at the time as well he did like a lot of stage plays and things so people okay. knew him as well yeah and it was apparently pretty cool to see him play in kind of a shifty character because he kind of made a name for himself play in those uh more rough and tumble kind of folks yeah from what i could read i'm sure it was something of a spectacle to like know these famous actors and then go see them all and then suddenly characters. see them act as a character yeah in yeah, an animated like movie animated this movie. is a whole like, new concept oh, this is a whole new idea this would get adults going to see a movie like this definitely you know yeah disney knew disney knew and he did it right i mean you know what he was doing for sure walt bastard one of the most interesting facts that i kind of happened upon as i was researching the film <laughs> is that another voice actor that disney recruited was Mel Blanc, Mel who Blanc. is best remembered for voicing Bugs Bunny as well as a lot of the other Looney Tunes Love Bugs um, Bunny. shorts. Love Bugs Bunny. Mel Blanc actually recorded the voice for Gideon the Cat, the cat sidekick to Honest John. Yeah. And it was eventually decided that Gideon would be mute. So all of his <laughs> yeah. all of his hard work was cut. I noticed that because he didn't speak the whole time. Nope. Gideon ended up not speaking, which I do think was probably funnier for the character. Right. But it's unfortunate because it would have marked really the one and only time that Mel Blanc and Walt Disney would have collaborated. Mm-hmm. But it still does, technically, because although all of his dialogue was deleted, his single solitary hiccup was kept 
And it happens three times in the finished film. Wow. If anybody asks you who is Gideon the cat's voice, it's not a trick question. Not a trick question. Mel Blanc did that hiccup. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> yeah, so tell me about an actor's life for me. Anything good? Okay, so the song is actually, technically, I'm going to correct you, it's called High Diddle Dee Oh, so, fine. You know what? Number one. I'll high diddle dee <laughs> myself on that here. <laughs> It was also written by Lee Harleen, and the lyrics are by Ned Washington and also Oliver Wallace. And the song was sung by the main antagonist, Honest John, the actor that plays Honest John. Honest John. kind of fun. Foul mouth. There are a lot of reprises of this song, as you might know. Yeah. And it evolves over time. It evolves over time, but this same song was used, or the same tune, I guess, same melody was reused in some um, goofy shorts in the 60s. But- it's considered the very first Disney villain song in history. No way. Which oh, shit. Wow. is kind of crazy to me. Yeah. As much as I love a good villain song, um, if you had asked me, you know, take that one to your trivia night. Like if you'd asked me the first Disney villain song, couldn't have told I wouldn't have you. known it was this. Oh, yeah. I probably would have. Oh, man. I don't know. Does the Queen of Hearts have a, have a song? I don't know. I don't know what I would have thought was the first one. But when we do Disney, we should just cover them. In chronological order. Like, we should just, like, Honestly, go back yeah, to Snow White and, and just go. work our way forward. Just so we can, like, yeah. keep up with all the history. I don't know, That would know, be though. a pretty good way to do it. What do you guys think? Tell us, listener. Write in. Let us know. Because well, let us know. we, we expect do to do a them, lot more. But sure, yeah. Some of them we, are the dark ones. The ones that are worth really talking about. Yeah. The pretty dark ones that led us to where we are today. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, sorry. First villain song. Because it goes from a, an actor's life for me to, like, do you know the next? I, f- I forget. I'm just blanking on well, like it's Pleasure Isle for me. Like he starts talking about how oh, okay. he's gonna Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's gonna live large we'll when he later, sells yeah. off Pinocchio and yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that gets dark as fuck and I have some fun oh, yeah. research. We, oh, we've got, oh, I've got so much darkness. I have some fun research. You guys there. know how it ends up happening when we do part two on a movie night? We get into all the darkest mm, shit. Because <laughs> we have so much more time. <laughs> yeah, right. So this puppet show. We get to watch this really fun puppet show. Mm-hmm. The opening act is a slew of hypersexualized puppet ladies mm-hmm. flipping up their skirts and showing off their undergarments. Yeah. Uh, some more animated butts. And Jiminy's just having a good old time. And then there are these uh, Russian puppets that were voiced by Walt Disney. Oh, yeah. 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 Like, hey. Yeah. Hey. But it's so good. Pinocchio is the star of the show, the main attraction. And he sings his world famous, I've got no strings. I've got no strings to hold me down, <laughs> to make me fret or make me frown. <laughs> hey. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you that when that came on the screen, I've sang every word from memory. I had no idea that I knew it. Nice. But it's crazy because in that scene is just, like we were saying, the irony of Pinocchio mm-hmm. is he's now singing I've Got No Strings when we're all watching these predatory people take advantage of him. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Like it's he not has, true. He has um, a different kind of strings. He has more strings than ever. He just doesn't know it. Right. I've Got No Strings, which is also known as I Got No Strings, <laughs> is sung by Dickie Jones, who voices no Pinocchio. Strings. Somehow I haven't told you guys yet, but this kid named Dickie Jones was a working actor at the time, very popular child actor. Yeah. It was discussed that Pinocchio's voice would be like a, a an adult imitating a child, but Walt was very against that, and he wanted to make sure that a child voiced Pinocchio. Yeah. So that became Dickie Jones. The music was written by Lee Harleen, again, okay. and the lyrics were written by Ned Washington as well. All right. So they kind of just teamed up and 
like knocked it out of the park. Those Disney bastards, all of them. <laughs> the whole lot of them. I got no strings to hold me. <laughs> it's a fun one. It's a fun song. And the, his voice singing it is really what does it. Like it's at so the very end, his it is so high pitched. And at the end, when he's like, I got no strings on me. Like, very, <laughs> it's cute. It's just really cute. In the book, Pinocchio decides to go to the puppet show rather than go to school. The puppets on stage are also sentient puppets who animate without strings. Because again, these are a subspecies. Mm hmm. The puppets on stage are named Harlequin and Punchinello, who are stock characters in Italian Commedia dell'arte. Mm -hmm. These puppets recognize Pinocchio as one of their own, and it causes such chaos that all the puppets come out to greet Pinocchio. Oh no. And the show is disrupted. And the showman, the human man who runs the puppet show, is not named Stromboli. He's named Fire Eater. Oh. And he takes Pinocchio captive. In the movie, the showman is Stromboli, of course, mm -hmm. and he's gotten so rich off of Pinocchio that he locked Pinocchio in a cage to keep him from going home to tell his father that he's a famous actor now. Mm -hmm. Jiminy is there, but he can't free Pinocchio, so the blue fairy comes to help. Pinocchio is so ashamed of what's happened that he lies about everything. Met somebody? Yeah, uh, two big monsters with big green eyes. I did that one time when I was a kid. Uh, yeah. I drew on my bedroom wall. <gasps> and How I told you. my mom it was the monster in my closet who did it. Mm. She believed you, huh? No, and my sister got in trouble because she left the crayon <gasps> in my room. <laughs> wow. Even, Classic case of baby baby brother gets away with murder. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I got away with a lot of stuff. Sorry, Lauren and Lindsay. <laughs> <laughs> but my nose didn't grow. It didn't. And so that once you'd had that experiment, you knew your nose wouldn't grow when you lied. Right. So I've been lying ever since. Right. Of course. But Pinocchio's nose doesn't just grow. It grows branches. Mm -hmm. And then there's a bird's and nest. A bird's nest. And the birds fly Ugh. away. <laughs> it honestly it grosses me out. Really to be, I just don't, I don't like Where'd those body come parts. From? I thought it was really funny though. I like it. So earlier I talked about how in the book we have lies with short legs and lies with long mm -hmm. noses. Mm-hmm. In this scene with Pinocchio's nose in the movie, the only thing that the Blue Fairy says really is that a lie keeps growing and growing until it's as plain as the nose on your face. Mm -hmm. And that's really the main discourse there about lying. Yeah, that's the idea. Of yeah, it. there's just so there's so much of this moralizing in the book about like good boys versus bad boys. I don't mm -hmm. know exactly where it falls in the movie, maybe in this scene here, but she basically just tells Pinocchio that a, a boy who won't be good just uh, might just as well be made of wood. I have that quote written down as yeah. well for that reason. So it, I think it's in that scene mm -hmm. there. She's basically scolding him, you know, trying to get him back on the right path. Mm -hmm. The straight and, and narrow. Of course, my religious trauma started to like bubble up <laughs> in these scenes, know, especially oh because it's all about being perfect, doing the right thing, quote unquote, you know, mm -hmm. you have to earn respect, love, yeah. all of those things. And I love how Jiminy's there like, hey, you have to tell the truth. Yeah, I'm going to hide. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'll be over here. I also really liked, we didn't say it earlier, but I really like how he, you know, as Pinocchio is trying to go to school and gets disrupted interrupted by these wayward folks yeah germany cricket's just running late <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
he's late for a very important date and he's yeah, just like, oh yeah. no, I got to get there. And I was like, like, oh, oh no. my God, I never knew I would relate this much to Jiminy Cricket because yeah. in my head, you know, he's the conscience, he's he's the perfect, like saintly kind of character and he is not he that is at so all. so not. Which yeah. I love. Uh, he's like, well, how much trouble could he get into between here and school? <laughs> <laughs> all the trouble, every of the trouble. Mm, every of the trouble. And then when, uh, when they go to sell him off to Stromboli, and Jiminy thinks that he's made it big. You know, he thinks he's hit the big time. He's in the show. Oh, and yeah. he's like, what does an actor want with a conscience anyway? Like, <laughs> God, I loved I loved the uh the ironic like commentary about actors. Yeah. Jiminy was even like I always liked Jiminy Cricket and I knew I did, but I after this watch, he's one of my favorites. Way more human than I remembered. Something interesting about Stromboli that I read. Yeah. According to one of the designers for the Mario video games. Yeah. The physical design for Wario. Wario, uh, yeah. I was gonna Mario's say. Rivals was partly derived from Stromboli as a character. That's incredible. It makes sense. That's amazing. Yeah, they I look very similar. IMDB said that, so. In the um the in the book, the uh, fire eater, he's described as having a, a beard so long that he steps on it when he walks. Ugh. And his mouth is so large it's like an oven. And his eyes are like burning coals or embers, like red mm, burning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he has a whip that's made of serpents and foxes' tails. Wow. Squish. Well, we kind of see Whoop-a. a moment of that with what's his name? The coachman? Yeah. He, well, he has a whip too. Yeah. The coachman. Sorry. The coachman. <laughs> Making sure he didn't know a name. But yeah. No. Um, that moment with hit, we, we'll get there. We're not there We'll yet. get there. Yeah. He, he also has a whip, but it's not made of snakes and foxes' tails. Right. I don't think. Oh, a man named Charles Judels voiced both Stromboli and the coachman. Oh, wow. Same guy. Two of the main antagonists. That's fantastic. I needed to insert that. And it, was, it seemed important because, yeah, two of the main antagonists were voiced by the same guy. We've got an Italian guy and an English guy. <laughs> same actor. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? Who'd have thunk? Enough's enough. <laughs> Sometimes enough's enough. After all. <laughs> all right. I'm going to start breaking hearts. Ready? Oh, no. We knew it was coming, didn't we, guys? This is the beginning of all the ensuing darkness. Mm-hmm. Well, in the book, Pinocchio is Fire Eater's uh, prisoner, essentially. He's part of his company now. And when Fire Eater decides to use one of the puppets as firewood to roast his mutton, Pinocchio offers himself up as tribute so that the other puppet won't die. <laughs> Fire Eater, whose hangry heart is softened, decides that no puppets will die tonight. In fact, he gives Pinocchio five gold pieces and tells him to run along home to his poor father, who is sure to be missing him. Mm-hmm. This is when Pinocchio meets the fox and the cat. Oh. Yes. They don't have names. Oh, okay. These two no-good, dirty, rotten scoundrels pretend to be beggars who accompany Pinocchio home. Mm-hmm. The fox pretends to be lame, and the cat pretends to be blind. I know these guys. They walk around downtown. Oh, they do, uh, yeah. Pulling this exact same scheme. You've seen them. Mm-hmm. The guy who pretends to be blind wearing the uh, mm-hmm. sunglasses at night. And when you talk to him, he looks directly at you. They're running a scheme. Mm-hmm. And Pinocchio naively tells them about his five gold pieces. So they tell him about a get-rich-quick scheme Uh-oh. that I will describe now from my copy of the book, which is a Puffin Classics. Nice. <laughs> a 1996 issue. Wow. It's not the... Original English translation, but this translation is from 1944, and it was specifically translated to be published in Australia. Is it a copy that you have from childhood, or did you buy it recently? No, I got it um, when I was, I think, 23, 24. Oh, wow. 
I bought this and read it for the first time. I don't know how you remember that. I just remember the era of my life when I was I don't thin. have memories about being 23. Because <laughs> that was the year I read a book a week. Nice. And this was on my list of uh, books I read. Wow. And that's when I knew that it was super dark and one day it was going to be a big part of my life. And here it is. Here we are. In 2022. But this is what they tell Pinocchio. Uh, they're they're going to take him to a place called Dupeland. Hmm. They say, well, the fox, because the- uh, Cat doesn't talk. The cat doesn't, well, the cat talks, but he just mostly repeats what the fox says. He's a henchman. He's a henchman. Classic henchman. So the fox says- What does the fox say? <laughs> you must know, should I do an Italian accent? <laughs> you must know that in Dupeland- <laughs> No. <there> is, <laughs> no. Uh, you must know that in Dupeland, there is a sacred field called the Field of Miracles. You dig a little hole- in this field, and you put in it, let's say, a gold piece. Then you cover it with earth, water it from the spring with two buckets of water, sprinkle two pinches of salt over it, and go quickly to bed. During the night, the gold pieces will grow and blossom, and the next morning, when you get up and go back to the field, what do you find? You find a marvelous tree. Hmm. Laden with as many gold pieces as an ear of corn has grains at harvest time. Don't you believe it. Don't you believe it. I love that thing. <laughs> that Looney Tunes little Tom yeah. and Jerry. Yep. I've researched that before. Oh man, I know it because my dad quotes it all the time. That's part of an old radio show. Don't you believe it. All right, so they get Pinocchio in on this scheme, thinking that he can make his poor father so very rich and he agrees to go with them. And they make this long journey. And somewhere along the way, they stop at the Red Crab Inn. Uh-huh. Which is why there's the scene in the movie at the Red Lobster Inn. Between, <laughs> maybe it was, well, I was going to say maybe it was a joke on Red Lobster, but Red Lobster was not even been. a chain at the time. There's no way it was. Yeah, there's no way. Maybe it's based off of the uh, Pinocchio movie. <laughs> uh, that's the scene between Honest John, Giddy, and the coachman. But we'll get to that in part two. And the coachman isn't there in the book. Um, they just stop in for dinner and get some rest before continuing their journey at midnight. And if you remember from earlier, I said that Collodi originally intended for Pinocchio to only be 15 chapters. Mm-hmm. But of course, there are 36. Oh, no. Because chapter 15 ended in such a disturbing and upsetting way that Collodi was obliged nay, obligated, mm. to continue the story for the sake of children's literature on the whole. Oh, dear. So what happened in chapter 15? So I'm so I'll, scared. I'll tell you. <laughs> I'm going to end part one of the series with a simple retelling of how Collodi saw fit to end Pinocchio. Okay. <laughs> I'm not ready. No, you're not. But go ahead. At the Red Crab Inn, Pinocchio is awoken at midnight by the innkeeper, who tells him that his companions have already left. But if Pinocchio is going to meet them at the Field of Miracles by morning, he will have to leave now. So Pinocchio continues the journey, wandering the dark woods at midnight all by himself. And he might be made of wood, but let's not forget that he's basically a six-year-old boy. In the woods, he encounters the glowing ghost of the dead talking cricket, who warns him to take the five gold pieces and return home to his father, who is already mourning him, mm -hmm. rather than trusting in the promises of strangers. Bad vibes. Bad vibes. And let me tell you, it's so dark at this point in the book, it's like tumbling downhill mm -hmm. quickly. Just the pace it goes and, and goes and goes and it speeds up. And it's yeah. like it's like a nightmare you cannot wake up from. Ugh. This is just the beginning. Thinking he's going to get rich, Pinocchio once again refuses to listen to the talking cricket. 
but there's one final warning from the talking cricket. Remember that children who do as they please and want to have their own way are sorry for it sooner or later. Mm. May heaven protect you from dangers and murderers. Damn. That's when Pinocchio realizes he's being followed by two figures dressed all in black. Mm-hmm. It's clearly the fox and the cat, but Pinocchio doesn't realize this. Mm-hmm. They tell him, hand over your money or you are dead. And after we have killed you, we will kill your father too. Mm. They grab him, but Pinocchio escapes by literally biting off the cat's paw and running away. Holy shit. Because he's made of wood, so he can chomp real hard. Nutcracker. Nutcracker. He comes to a little white house in the middle of the woods, but at first there doesn't seem to be anyone home. He bangs on the door, and that's when a little girl appears in the window. She has pale white skin and blue hair. Mm. Her eyes are closed, and she speaks without opening her mouth. No. She says to Pinocchio, there is nobody in this house. They are all dead. What? I am dead too. (gasps) Unable to enter. (laughs) Pinocchio is seized by the murderers, who first try stabbing him to death. But he's made of wood, so it breaks the knife blades. That's when the fox realizes that the only way to kill him is to hang him. Mm. They tie his hands behind his back and slip a noose around his throat and tie him to the branch of an oak tree. And this is the text that ended Pinocchio in chapter 15 in 1882. A tempestuous northerly wind began to blow and roar angrily, and it beat the poor puppet from side to side, making him swing violently, like the clatter of a bell ringing for a wedding. And the swinging gave him atrocious spasms. It hurt him dreadfully and the running noose tightened around his throat so that he could not breathe. He shut his eyes, opened his mouth, stretched out his legs, gave a long shudder, and hung stiff and insensible. The end. Jesus, Colody, what is wrong with you? Holy shit, right? (laughs) My microphone is peaking because I'm so upset. Colody, are you okay? It's so dark. It's so Are you all right? Oh it's my so god! It's so dark. I don't like that everyone in the house is dead. That was the and part so that really got me. That's a lot. There's nobody in this house. They're all dead. I gotta I say it. That's too. pretty dark. That's pretty dark. So to close, Pinocchio is a sentient puppet with a mind and a will of his own. He has feelings and senses. He can see and talk and move around. He can feel pain and hunger. Mm -hmm. He can laugh. He can cry. He can eat, drink, sleep, and breathe. And then in chapter 15, just when we start to really sympathize with him for the first time and put ourselves in his shoes and relate to him, he is murdered in cold blood. Mm. Or no blood at all, but damn. Cold wood. (laughs) And uh, we'll open part two. With the rebirth of Pinocchio. Jeez. Well, uh, Merry Christmas, I guess. In the new year. (laughs) I literally wrote Merry Christmas. Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, you guys knew what you signed up for, I guess, when you clicked on a podcast called That's Pretty Dark. But uh, I, I, for one, am a host of this show and didn't know we were going there today. So I apologize for ruining Christmas for everybody already. Damn. I already apologize. Well, luckily, luckily, we will reconvene with part two. Yes. Where we go through more of the Disney film, which 
is, of course, pretty dark, and we have so much to say about that. The well, there's more, so there's more to the book, too. Yeah, there's so there's much There's 21 more chapters, so I mean, but you can see why. I venture to guess, this. though, that we still won't get as dark as this. Um, I don't think we can. No, this is pretty much the darkest aspect of it. Mm-hmm. There's just more of it, and it's more consistent, but it's not as heavy. Yikes. Not quite so. I mean, but I mean, there's the, you know... F- false utopia for children mm-hmm. that we get to that is oh yeah we've got we've got so much i think it's pretty dark myself mm-hmm. but no this is this is pretty much the heaviest it it, it gets but you can, yeah you can see why kids were so upset and disturbed and they were like hey what you have to write more because that can't be how it ends it can't right? be how it ends i think we've said this before on the podcast but imagine if like at the end of season one or season two of spongebob they murder spongebob and that's how it ends he's dead Mm-hmm. He dies. Like, can you imagine that? That is like this perfect. is what that was for kids in Italy mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah, and in the eighteen hundreds, murdered. You're not my friend anymore, Colodi. Well, I mean, I, I'm I'm going to get into the history of Colodi, his life, and where maybe Pinocchio explain to came. us how and why yes. this happened. I, okay, I explain why Pinocchio I'll reserve is so judgment dark. until I know more about him. Yes. I guess there's there's a reason that's for why we're it. here, right? Yeah. See, I was going to end this episode with all that stuff. But this would have been way too long of an episode. Yeah. Um, so that's how we open next time. I explain everything. Okay. But I wanted to leave this little bit of uh, Christmas darkness for everybody to enjoy. Well, but I do have a palate cleanser oh. um, as some final thoughts, just just for fun, just for some Christmas fun. Okay. <laughs> I wrote, if this episode leaves you in need of a palate cleanser, <laughs> I recommend reading The Cricket on the Hearth by Charles Dickens. Oh, the Cricket on the Hearth is meant to be a quaint little domestic fairy tale of home, and one of the main characters, Miss Perry Bingle, says to her husband John, John Perry Bingle, to have a cricket on the hearth is the luckiest thing in all the world. Mm-hmm. Because there's this cricket who's chirping, chirping, chirping. Mm-hmm. Yeah, crickets are considered lucky in a lot of cultures. Yeah. And it's it's one of uh, Dickens' like five main Christmas stories, mm-hmm. one being, of course, A Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. Critiques of this story say that the cricket represents something of a guardian angel over the uh, Perry Bingle family, mm-hmm. protecting them and bringing them good fortune. And this novella was published on December 20th, 1845, which tomorrow is December 20th for us. It is, yeah. Published roughly 35 years before Collodi began publishing his story of a puppet. Mm. So I can't say for certain, but this may very well be where the idea of the talking cricket comes from for Collodi mm-hmm. and why he put him in the, in the, you know, Geppetto's hut and why he's there to give Pinocchio good advice um, as something of a guardian angel. Because, mm-hmm. you know. We've seen Mulan. Right. Mm-hmm. When, when Pinocchio's revived, so is the cricket. Gotcha. And so is the little dead girl. Okay. She becomes the blue fairy. Who knew um, the blue fairy had such a past? <laughs> <laughs> but whether or not that was Collodi's intention I believe there was a little bit of that in the Disney film, mm-hmm. especially since Jiminy describes himself as just a simple cricket going heart to heart and how Disney continued using Jiminy as such a figure of guidance, not only for Pinocchio, but for all of Disney culture for like the mm-hmm. last 80 years. Yeah. So I think there was a little bit of that Gotta love him. Christmas tinge to crickets and like good luck and good fortune and guidance and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. All mixed in. So yeah, if you need to go feel better about yourself, go read the cricket on the hearth and thank we'll you have a very very merry merry christmas christmas and a happy holidays to you yeah happy holidays not just christmas whatever you are celebrating or if you're not celebrating at all sure of course of course we're here with you we hope this gave you the uh spooky darkness you look for during the winter months mm-hmm. we hope that uh 
It really just, you know, mm, just got you there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back very soon <laughs> with a chat and uh, yeah. and part two. Our annual so, like uh, campfire chat next week. Hopefully and then you guys part don't two. mind that we're we're uh, starting the year off ending a series. <laughs> yeah. Well, we hope you don't mind, but if you do, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, because it's still what we're doing. <laughs> it's not what's going to happen. <laughs> I was like giggling to myself earlier, knowing I was going to end this with Pinocchio's death. Yeah. That was kind of like I did during the We're Back episode when I was like, well, and then the balloon floated headless. <laughs> the end. Oh, it's so fun. It's Sad so times. Fun. Man. All right. Well, I don't want to keep you guys any, any you know, longer. <laughs> like we're on the phone. You got to hang up. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll let you go. I'll let you go. That's let the you Southern go. way to uh, um, get the hell off the phone. Get some things done. We appreciate you. Thank you for... Like, this is our last episode of 2022, so thank you so, so much for listening in 2022. Yeah, my God. It has you been guys so have been fun. incredible. It's really been amazing. We can't wait to keep it up in 2023. Yeah. Keep it up. <laughs> all, all the time. Yeah. Wow. As we're both, like, slowly dying. If you bring a puppet to life, make sure you give it some guidance. Mm-hmm. It needs a conscience. It needs a conscience. Mm-hmm. Let your conscience be your guide. And if you don't have one... Find one? You could listen to us... Yeah. Or Gemini. Yeah, we'll, we'll tell you how to how to be. <laughs> I don't think anybody wants that. No, not me. Thanks for listening to That's Pretty Dark, written and produced by Christian Baxter Mott and Kaylin Andrews. Our music is composed by Jonathan Simmons, and our art is provided by Paige Garland at Power Girl Illustration. Join the collective nostalgia and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at That's Pretty Dark Podcast. Share your experiences and let us know what shows, films, or villains still haunt you from childhood at That's Pretty Dark Podcast at gmail.com. Remember, you're never really alone. So until next time, sweet dreams, everyone. <laughs>